Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Good morning. On April 10th, 1922, Critical, and it's WBT, WBT Charlotte, North Carolina. was born. And I remember we would listen to WBT. Yeah, this is a big broadcast for WBT. Right, let's call Look at that day out there. What do you want to hear tonight? Hello, WBT. You're on the air. Hello, Bob Lacey. Hello there, neighbor. Hello, first-timer. Taken by Trapuca. It's good! It was best. Scored by Charlotte Hornets. History's been made. Hurricane Hugo has made landfall. Yeah, no power. No information coming into the station other than the telephone. Cut him down. It's a very special radio station because people care. It's the John Hancock radio program. Carolina Panthers have been named the NFL's newest expansion. With their first touchdown. Bank of America Stadium. Kind of jumping back and forth in our coverage here. Long, strange trip. It's still in. Throw me in the pool, please. Ray Carew's managed to evade police. David Chadwick. The plane has now crashed into the World Trade Center. It would appear purposeful. be the first to welcome you to our little club thingy. I'm Stacey Sims. Charlotte's Mr. Wright. Carolina Panthers are headed to Super Bowl 50. The Star Eagles are going to win the national What's going to be the impact We may see some serious issues here at midnight. We're providing insight that they're not getting anywhere else. Mr. Trump, welcome to Charlotte Radio. Good morning, Bob. Hey, gather around, my friends, in this mythical ballot. WBT. The great colossus of the South. Through the years. I love this radio station as much as you guys do, but I love this radio station because of you guys. This powerful voice of the good stuff. This is Bo Thompson's Century Podcast. You're listening to live coverage of the NFL franchise announcement from Chicago where uh, the Carolina Panthers have been named the NFL's newest expansion team. Live coverage here on News Radio 1110 WBT. Dateline October 26th, 1993, Chicago, Illinois. This is a dream come true for me and my partners who are many of us here tonight. All of you people that bought all of those 40,000 plus PSLs, you helped make history today. Pat yourself on the back. When I get back to Charlotte, I'm going to say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Sounds from the day the Carolina Panthers were born. All 28, can you believe this? All 28 team owners voted one way, and the one way was our way. The NFL in 1995 was playing in the Carolinas. Hallelujah, five and a half years and millions of dollars later, it is official. And celebration continues all over town. Our friend Brad Schultz is standing by at Founders Hall. Brad, what's going on where you are? Yes, Henry. In Founders Hall, what's going on, my friend? Well, right now, uh, we've got some cleaning up, but some folks are not wanting to leave. Some folks are saying, where's the NFL merchandise? We're ready to go. Uh, every time uh, there, there was a visual image tonight of uh, a T-shirt or a sweatshirt with the Panthers, the crowd here at Founders Hall applauded very loudly. Uh, people today were very, very confident uh, that the Richardsons were going to be able to answer the question. But folks here in the Carolinas are ready to party, and they're going to do that the rest of the night. Over the next two years, a franchise would be carefully constructed, with those initial voices giving way to one singular voice of the Panthers. Eight years ago, Jerry Richardson had a dream. The dream was bringing professional football, NFL football, to the Carolinas. 
Eight years later, that dream comes true. This afternoon, the Carolina Panthers play their first regular season home game against the St. Louis Rams. For the next decade, Bill Rosinski called the action on the newly minted Carolina Panthers radio network and its flagship station, WBT. Caroline short drop, looks, looks, fires over the middle, walls, has it, touchdown! Down the middle of the field, Broughton's there, got it! Fires left side, caught by Moose, dives in the end zone, touchdown! This is the Carolina Panthers wrap-up show. Handoff, Floyd up the middle, he's in the end zone, touchdown! Pressure up the middle, Gilbert's got him for a sack at the 22! How do you like that? Placement, Casey's kick is on the way, it is up. Is it long enough? Yeah! He did it! Oh! 62 yards and it's over! <laughs> I don't believe it! In 2005, Rosinski and the team parted ways. But as you'll hear over the next hour, Bill was a well-known American sports voice before and after Carolina. I knew we were in trouble when Dave Jennings said kickers love the dome. But it is the terror of the 90s. I like that. All right. Aggie are ready. So are we. The 92 season about to begin. And at kickoff. Miller under Jamie Dukes' center takes the snap. Drops back. Has plenty of time. Looks. Fires. And the ball's in the end zone. Michael Haynes has it. Touchdown. One play. 15-yard scoring strike. And the Falcons score again and lead 9-0. Nice play to Turner. Back outside to Martin. 14 seconds to go. And Pitt will just lay off now. NC State fans... On their feet, and a solid win against a very tough Pitt team. But the Wolfpack advance, and they will take on the Duke Blue Devils here in one of the quarterfinal matchups. Back to throw. In trouble sack. The ball came loose. It's a fumble. Oklahoma picks it up and runs it into the end zone. Touchdown! Touchdown Sooners! Ball game over! Handoff yelled it straight up the middle. Easy touchdown right over his center. And just like that, the Crimson Tide are on the board. Nick Saban said coming into the week, it's all about mindset in bowl games. And boy, they came out on fire and stuck it down the Sooners' throats on their opening possession. Bill Rosinski, up to you. Nicholson Parr put on the way. Halfway there, inching closer to the cup. Getting closer and closer. And in! And a fist raised in the air for Phil Nicholson. Gallery rises to their feet. A part 18 and a good one after nearly putting it in the creek left of the green. Phil Mickelson finishes seven under par. Hunterblade makes contact, making its way to the cup. He buried it and a big yell. Max Homa has won the 2019 Wells Fargo Championship. Max Homa, a life-changing victory in Charlotte, a winner on the PGA Tour. And so here we are back in the Century Podcast Studio for the season finale of season number two. And I am very happy to tell you that the latest stop for Bill Rosinski is right here for the next 90 minutes or so. The original voice of the Carolina Panthers, Bill, it's good to see your face back at WBT. It's fun to come back in here. I've got a lot of fond memories of walking in these studios. Uh, you know, first started back in 95 when the Panthers started and I became their voice. And eventually on the morning show here with Al Gardner for a while, you and I met, and we've uh, also worked together at other places. Uh, and it's been a fun ride, and here we are. Well, we'll get to uh, some of the details of the things you mentioned right there, but uh, with every person that has come through this podcast, uh, and the idea here is to tell the story of WBT over 
the course of a century and talk to uh, voices and personalities that have been uh, impact makers here. And, and, and it's a two-way street. I mean, the, the voices like yours make a big impact on these call letters. But I also know that working for these call letters... Uh, impact you while you're here, and then you go out and you do other things after it. And uh, I know you have uh, memories of things that you did here, but before we get to that, let's uh, let's start at zero, or at least uh, zero with Bill Rosinski's broadcasting career, because there's a lot I know that came before you and I met. Uh, and, and so when you tell the story of, of you becoming interested, getting the broadcast bug, are you like me? Did you always know you wanted to do this? Yes. When I was probably six, seven, eight years old, somewhere in that range, I grew up outside Buffalo, New York, a city called Tonawanda. And I remember I, I was a, my father got me into sports, being a sports fan, including the Buffalo teams. And I remember many Sundays because home games, the Buffalo Bills and the old AFL back in the 60s were blacked out. You had to listen to the game on the radio. You could not find it on television. How things have changed over the years. <laughs> And I would, we'd come back from church, I'd go down in the basement, I'd turn on the radio and listen to Van Miller, the voice of the Bills. And I was listening to Van, and I thought to myself, you know, I like sports. He's, he's having fun. He gets to go to the game. <laughs> so I said, I think that's what I wanted to do. Now, I was a decent, growing up, I was a decent baseball player, became a decent football player in high school, and thought to myself, well, maybe there's a career in professional sports for me. But I realized by my senior year of high school, first year of college, that was not going to happen. So I went to school, studied broadcasting. In fact, if you look at my high school yearbook, you'll see a picture of my senior year. And it says, uh, you know, your goal, future goals. I said radio, TV announcer. That, mm -hmm. That's what it was. And uh, so I went to um, uh, Marietta College in Ohio, studied broadcasting. And the fortunate thing about Marietta, unlike a lot of the bigger schools, including Syracuse, where everybody comes out of, supposedly, is I was, a, as a freshman, able to do play-by-play -play of JV sports, freshman games, soccer, I mean, you name it, they would do it. So I got to, you know, find out for myself, my first couple of years in school, is this what I really want to do? The voice that you have is such a booming, powerful, memorable voice. Did you know as soon as the voice dropped and did people say, Bill, you should be on the radio? Or did you know I've got something here I, I need, to, I need to, uh, to, to, to hone my skills? Not really. Uh, early on, people would tell me, you've got, oh, you've got a voice for radio. I yeah. never really thought about that. I remember when my dad brought home a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder. Mm -hmm. And I started playing around with it. And f I think for people... If you've never heard your voice before and then you hear it on tape, they go, what's that? That doesn't sound like me. <laughs> but that's what, that's what your voice is. So I, I would listen to myself, and I would, I would make up. I would do – I used to have, you know, throw the dice or spin the dial baseball games, and yeah. I would pretend I was doing play-by-play. -play. But to answer your question, I never thought about my voice, that I have to go to some, you know, voice school. Can I drop it down lower? Uh, God gave me this – Fortunately, I went into a career where you need a good voice, but I never thought to myself that, boy, I've got a great voice for this. I, I was more involved in this is what I want to do for a living. And then if I, when people hear me and if they don't think I'm any good, then I guess I'm going to have to go do something else. But that So was, is that voice trained at all, or was that just no. what you got and you went with it? That's what I got and what I went with it. Never, that, never trained. That, that makes it even more uh, <laughs> impressive. So uh, there you are. And again, 
I don't know if you were the one who started this wave in Charlotte, but shortly after you got here, I can name five or six more people who came to Charlotte by way of Buffalo. I mean, <laughs> Char- right. Charlotte, and I know now the Carolina Panthers, uh, Buffalo is the Carolina Panthers north. Yeah. But back in the day, back right around when you got here, uh, you would go in a restaurant in Charlotte in Uptown, and the odds of finding somebody who was from <laughs> Buffalo were almost as good as finding a Charlotte native. Well, you know, part of that was because the original Panthers, their general manager, was Bill Polian, who came from the Buffalo Bills. Bill brought down a slew of people from that organization, from security to front office personnel. And their kids, Bill's kids and some of Bill's kids' friends became part of the organization early on. If you look at that 95 Panther yearbook, you will see a picture of Tom Telesco. Tom Telesco was a coffee getter, go get me this, go get me that. One of Bill Polian's, Chris's, uh, was his son, who worked for the team. And they all went to John Carroll together. Tom Telesco is now the general manager of the San Diego Chargers. You will see a picture next to him of Dave Caldwell. Dave Caldwell is now the general manager of the Jacksonville Jaguars. But all these people were had ties to Buffalo. And then there were other people, for some reason, who came down from Buffalo anyway because they like Charlotte, just normal, <laughs> normal everyday people. Well, so, yeah, it, and it's it, still that way. Let's call it what it is. They followed Bill Rosinski. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, I took a securitous route to, uh, to, to Charlotte, but uh, I think that's a big reason. You had uh, a lot of staffers come down from Buffalo with Polian. So uh, let's rewind back or, or join up in the story uh, where I, before I took the tangent, uh, which is you uh, knew – that you wanted to be in mm-hmm. broadcasting. It said that in the yearbook. You realized you had the pipes. And uh, so then what? Well, I got my degree. And by, by the time I was a senior, even my advisors were telling me, look, you're really good at what you do. Um, they were no help in finding a job. <laughs> and I thought I was, you know, by my senior year, I thought I was pretty good. So I remember going back home to Buffalo. And this was my first realization that... Uh, you know, you don't control your own destiny. I went to a number of radio stations in Buffalo and said, here I am. And they said, who the hell are you? <laughs> and I was fortunate enough in that I, uh, my parents, my uncle, now this is another side story. One of my great moments at this radio station, according to John Hancock, <laughs> was when I sang the uh, Urbanics Transmission uh, commercial. So, but that's another story. Anyway, my Uncle Joe was a big advertiser in Buffalo Radio. So, my uncle, along with some other people in my family, got me a sit-down with the general manager of WBEN in Buffalo. And they were the Bills station at the time. They were a big, big, big radio station in Buffalo. And uh, I remember sitting down with the general manager, and he looked at my resume from what I had done. He says, Bill, you know, this is, this is great. He said, but, you know, we're not hiring you. Right now, you have no experience. I said, well, what about... He said, no, no, commercial radio experience. You need to get out there and, you know, find a job uh, at a smaller market, uh, you know, cut your teeth on that, and then, you know, then maybe come back. And I said, okay. So uh, I was I was actually home. I graduated in May of 75. And in July of 75, I got a call from a buddy who had gone to work. He was another radio TV guy at Marietta. He'd gone to work for the local radio station there. He said, hey, look, and they did a lot of sports. You know, it was your typical small market. We'll do the high school game. We'll do slow pitch games, whatever we can do. Mm-hmm. And he called me up and he said, uh, Bill, there's, there's an opening here. It's a disc, you're, you're a disc jockey from like 6 to midnight, Monday through Friday. You know, they do a ton of sports here. They've got sports people now, but there's so much turnover at this radio station. So eventually I contacted the GM. The GM got back to me and he said, yep, come on down. 
I moved to Marietta, Ohio in uh, late July, early August of 1975 and was spinning records. Remember what records were? 45s, 33s. Uh, and I was working 6 to midnight. And as my friend was so right, within they had a sports director there. And this is, this is like WKR. We were WKRP in Cincinnati. We had, uh, we had Les Nessman doing the news. Uh, Herb Tarlick, the sales guy with the wild We had that guy, you know, the crazy owner. Uh, we had all that. And within two weeks, the guy who was like the assistant sports guy and who did color on the high school games quit. So I became, and the sports director was a guy named Big John Wharf. And Big John was a big guy. <laughs> and uh, I, I, learned, I actually learned a lot from John. I, I still use spotting boards that he showed me how to make, prep for games the way he, he prepped for games. So within two or three years, I was the, he left, Big John left. Within a year and a half, I was sports director, morning show host. Yep. And uh, salesman, which if people don't know this, for the most part in radio, unless you're going to get to, unless you're a big high high price talent like Bob and Sherry, or maybe a Bo Thompson, I don't uh, know. Hey, you know as well as anybody that uh, you know the path that I took to, to, to get where I am right now. A lot of it was working with you uh, along the way. So, But the people who make the money in local markets are salespeople. Yeah. I mean, they're the, the, know, so. the one thing I haven't done. <laughs> Salespeople make the money, and a lot of it is like that. So anyway, uh, that was my first job, did it for three years. Then I just, you know, I, I kept moving around. If you yeah. want, my, my brief history is I went from there. I, I wasn't a big, I didn't like sales. I wanted to just concentrate on sports. So I went to Alliance, Ohio, after three years in Marietta, and... Uh, was the I, I had to do news and sports, but I was the voice of the Alliance High School football team and Mount Union, which was another division. Marietta was Division Three. They played in the Ohio Athletic Conference with Mount. And if people know sports and Division Three football, Mount Union now is one of the powers. They're always winning the Division Three championship, and they were pretty good back then. So I did that for a couple of years. Things happen in your life that you can't control that dictate where you go next. I was happy in Alliance. I enjoyed it. Big fish, small pond. My wife, Jane, was the editor, the women's editor at the newspaper. Well, no, no, hang on, because I was waiting to see where you'd first mentioned Jane in all of this, and, and, and Jane is very important for, for a lot of reasons, telling the Bill Rosinski story, obviously, but, you know, Jane, uh, for as long as I've known you, is your statistician yes. in whatever sport you're calling. So when, did you meet Jane before you started this trail through different places, or where, it, do, where does Jane and Bill was, meeting come in? It was early on. We went to, she was, she, went, she and I both went to Marietta College. Okay. We both graduated in 75. We knew each other in school, never dated. I eventually returned there after graduating to work at the radio station. She had stayed to teach. She was teaching at one of the county schools. And, you know, one night after, uh, this is another long story. This would be better for Oprah or something. <laughs> but uh, uh, we eventually met, started dating. And there were times she would come to the football games, like road trips. We'd go to Columbus because Marietta had to go travel a, a long ways to find schools as big as theirs. So you'd take, you'd take trips to Columbus. And she'd come with me, and she'd sit there in the press box reading a book or halfway watching the game. I said, hey, why don't you learn to do stats? <laughs> so that started when I was doing high school games. And it led to her being... You know, all, the, all these many years later when I went to ESPN, ESPN paid her to be my statistician. They traveled her 
Uh, she did it for the Panther home game. She didn't travel on the road with me. And even at Westwood One, when there were occasional games yeah. I was doing. So, yeah, she was... Uh, well, and I say statistician, but one of the great things I, I think about Jane as I'm watching from afar is Jane, uh, I mean, obviously she's your spouse, but she also uh, has a great interest in what you do, and she is part of it, not just from being a statistician doing football and basketball, but as we'll get to later, you know, calling golf now, uh, I see uh, videos from you on your... <laughs> social media sites and there's jane right beside you on the golf course too mm-hmm. yeah drives uh we, we do get carts so we can motor around ahead of the crowds although yeah. there's no crowds now which is rather strange uh yeah she has been uh and and we're lucky because we're at the point in our lives where uh i know you've met my two sons you know bobby more than greg uh but they're both grown men they're i've got grandkids and so everybody's out of the house so when we travel Lots of times I'm traveling with guys who, let's say you do a college football game on Saturday, they're getting up at Sunday morning at 6 o'clock to get back home to the family. Jane and I are taking the noon flight. <laughs> why, why do we want to go to the airport at 6 o'clock? And... Well, not only that. I mean, I have you on my show on WBT uh, a lot, especially when the big golf majors happen or you're calling a, a big basketball or football event. And there are times, especially with the golf, I'll call you on that Monday morning thinking you've come back and you say, hey, no, look where we are. I'm staying here for a few days, <laughs> you know, because the kids are gone and Jane and I can, mm-hmm. can travel a little bit too. So, I, again, I get to the golf a little bit bit later but for the purposes of making sure i cover everything and the amount of time that i want to here so uh there you are uh, now we're in, in, in alliance that's right. where you left we're in off. alliance and again i go back to the way things happen very happy there had no uh quant- you know just never thought about moving getting another job and the radio station announces one day they're dropping sports <laughs> no play-by-play no nothing so I go, okay, I better start looking for another job. So uh, a friend of mine uh, told me that uh, WEBR in Buffalo, news talk station, owned by public broadcasting, was looking for a sports guy, basically doing sports cast. But you would cover the Bills and the Sabres as a reporter. Right. So I, and they also did minor league baseball. They did the Bisons, which were, there was a double AT at the time, double A team. And fortunately for me, I knew the guy who was the general manager of the Bisons. He was my high school baseball coach. Called him up, said, hey, can you put a word in for me at uh, WEBR? So there it is. I got the job. And I was there, boy, just a little over a year. And this is, and here's the other thing. You mentioned Jane. We started dating, and uh, we get married, and I'm entrenched at WMOA in Marietta. And back in those days, you know, rolling in the cash, 20, 25 grand a year doing sales, sports. <laughs> I, my first that the, the job I got, I told you, six to midnight, dollar ninety five an hour. That was minimum wage back in nineteen seventy five. That's what I was making. I'm not that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, so I'm making decent money. She's teaching, but I moved to Alliance because I want to get out. Of, I don't. I don't want to be in sales. I just want to do play by play. If they want me to do news, fine. I take a pay cut. So then the station says no more sports. We go to Buffalo. It's it's a uh, owned by the public broadcasting company. They pay no money. Hmm. I think I, I my my salary went down to like ten or twelve grand. So finally Jane looks at me and she says, "Promise me something. The next job you get, you get a raise." Because I had taken three pay cuts or two pay cuts to get to where I was. And as it happened, uh, I was there a year. wasn't thinking about leaving. I was back home covering the Bills and the Sabers. No play by play, but just as a reporter, morning guy. In the old broadcasting magazine, they had the want ads in the back. One of the many magazines read from back to front by most of us in the business. 
And it said, uh, Network New York Radio, New York Radio Network, looking for sports anchor reporter. Didn't say who, what, where, you know. So I sent in a tape, forgot about it. But it said New York. So that's yes, it did say New York. Thing. Yeah. So five, six weeks later, I get a call from a guy named Mike Alibaugh. Bill. Mike, Mike had a deep, his voice was deeper than mine. <laughs> I was going to say, said the guy with the booming deep voice. <laughs> and he says, hey, Mike Alibaugh, UPI Radio, New York City. We liked your tape. We want you to come up for an interview. So, hey, great. So I go up, do the interview, come back home. I don't know if they're going to hire me or not. I seem to, seem to go well. And eventually they offered me the position. So here I go from, you know, in, in within a year and a half or two from Alliance to Buffalo. And now I'm working in the Daily News Building in New York City. UPI Sports, I'm Bob Melvin. In NBA playoff openers. 42nd and 2nd. Yeah, a lot of people, uh, younger people listening, uh, won't recognize UPI, United mm-hmm. Press International. But uh, UPI was a big deal. It was. And uh, there were the two. There was, uh, we were always competitors with AP mm-hmm. because the, the, the radio network and the wire services were just tied together. So uh, I go to New York, and I'm, that was my first opportunity to travel around the country. The first thing I ever covered in my life for UPI Radio was the uh, 1981 PGA Championship in Atlanta. The day I fly out is the air controller strike. President Reagan busted that union pretty quickly. And if they do not report for work within 48 hours, they have forfeited their jobs and will be terminated. And we sat on the tarmac for a couple of hours. And the pilot's telling us, look, uh, the, air, the air controllers are going out on strike. I don't even know if we're getting out. We did get out. Uh, so I covered that. And then the first time I ever had, it was that was in August. And in October, the Yankees were playing the Dodgers in the World Series. And Mike Alaba says, Bill, you want to cover the World Series? Oh, yeah, sure. Well, yes, I do. And I was a Yankee fan growing up, so here I am uh, and with the Yankees being home. Steve Garvey hitting third at first base, and Ron Say will... Uh, you know, there was no travel there, but I did fly out to Los Angeles and covered uh, the World Series out there, and it ended in six games. The Los Angeles Dodgers have just about done the impossible. Lasorda throws his hat away, runs out with his hands and arms held high in the air to grab Steve. Uh, the Dodgers won it. I, I still remember interviewing Steve Garvey in the locker room after the game, and he had a Brooklyn Dodgers T-shirt on underneath his L.A. Dodger uniform. We want people to know that we won this World Series. And I remember asking him about it, and he gave me this great story about this guy he met who was a, a diehard Dodger fan, Brooklyn fan. The third time was a charm for us, and we thank everyone, and we thank God. Who had cancer, and he, they became friends, and he had passed away, and in his honor, he was wearing that Brooklyn Dodgers shirt the entire World Series, and I remember doing this whole piece about it. Uh, we sent it out on the network, and I remember my bosses coming to me. Well, that was great. You know, that was that was really yeah. cool. And that's that's some of the fun stuff you and I get to do. Uh, well, it's interesting you mentioned uh, Steve Garvey. First first baseball game that I ever went to as a kid was a Braves Dodgers game at Fulton County Stadium back in 1982, and I Dale Murphy was my hero on that team, and and mm-hmm. and I knew every player on that team. So anybody who came through the tunnel where we waited for the players to come out. Uh, anybody would have been like magic. Well, there was a couple of random Braves that, that, that came through the tunnel. Dale Murphy and Bob Horner did not come <laughs> through the tunnel. But you know who did and actually stopped and signed autographs? And I have pictures of this. 
Steve Garvey. <laughs> really? In in the, the city that's halfway across the country, uh, and he was one of the bigger stars for the yep. Dodgers, as you know. So yep. uh, he, he did it on both coasts. <laughs> he did. He did. He was uh, he was great. So and, and with UPI, I was still not doing play-by-play, but I was covering Super Bowls, and, yeah. and I covered a couple of Masters golf tournaments, U.S. Opens, all that kind of stuff, NBA Finals, NHL Finals. Well, you knowing me know I'm going to ask this question. Do you have tapes of it? Sadly, no. I believe I have. I may have some stuff that I did in Marietta. Yeah. But it's on a. I think it was on a cassette. It was this real wide cassette tape that you, we used to use. Um, I'd have to look for that stuff. Well, uh, people who have listened to this <laughs> podcast know that it's almost uh, it's like my quest when yeah. whoever I talk to to find these old tapes. Uh, and uh, I've, I've been pretty successful, so if you can bring me the, the medium, I can usually find a way, but we'll try to, we'll try to dig up some stuff You know what? Some, somebody, uh, an old a guy, a guy used to, uh, I went to school with, I think he was a year ahead of me, uh, on Facebook, he found it was me and this other guy doing a Marietta College football game when we were actually Actually, uh, this is probably well. We were still in school because we did travel to the road games and do college broadcasts. Of it was like two plays. <laughs> I've got to, I've, I've got to find this. So. Well, uh, for for later in the podcast, uh, you know, I'm the one guy around this building who still uh, goes through old cabinets, hoping that I'll find a gem here and there. <sighs> I found the cart about uh, three or four years ago, uh, and the label that I read the title, I thought, you know, uh, I'm just going to hold on to this because maybe someday it'll come in handy. It says, um, Urbanic Song. (laughs) (laughs) I kid you not. So, hey, that's what you call a tease within the podcast. We'll uh, we'll roll that one a little bit later. But uh, tell Hancock you're going to run it because I'll never forget because that happened in the morning with Al. And I remember I was in the car that afternoon, and I had Hancock on, and he comes on, and he goes, I want to tell you something, folks. The best radio I ever heard was this morning, Bill Rosinski singing this song. I'm going, oh, geez. The reason it was so good is because it came out of nowhere. I mean, Bill has this facade, and not always serious, but you have kind of a, a look about you. And I remember we were in, in the studio that morning, and I was the producer of that show. So Al's in there, and Danny's in there, and you're in there. And... Uh, and, and that came out of, I don't know what he said to make you, but it was like Bill immediately just all of a sudden, boom, you know, returned to that moment and, and, and sang it. And, and like I said, I have the tape. All so right, there you we'll go. get back to that. But let's get back to UPI. Uh, yep. There you are. You're in, you're in the Big Apple. You've made it. Yeah, loving it. Uh, working in New York. Jane would, uh, you know, we had our, um, Greg was born when we were in Alliance. Our second son, Bobby, was born when, when I was working for UPI in New York. We lived in Glen Rock, New Jersey, beautiful little town. We loved our life. We, we had just bought a house after renting. And I will never forget, this is April of 83, I think. And we're on the, we had this enclosed front porch, and Jane and I are sweeping. I was working morning shift, and we looked at each other and said, wow, we've, we've finally got, you know, we're, you know, we're happy. We got our kids. You know, great. Bobby was going to be born that uh, that August, but everything's great. Got our first house. Phone rings. Phone rang right <laughs> after we said it, and I answer the phone. It's a guy that I'm working with at UPI in New York. He's at the office. He says, "Hey, Bill, the company said they're moving to D.C." I go, "What? Yeah, moving to D.C." The co- UPI had gone into a lot of financial hardship, uh-huh. so someone else had bought it. Uh, Scripps Howard owned it. Somebody bought it from Scripps. 
and that included the wire service and the radio network, and they had decided to move everybody to Washington, D.C. So that eventually, so I stayed with UPI, you know, covering the big events, and they moved us to D.C. in uh, December of, 90, uh, of 83, sadly for Jane and the kids, sadly for Jane mostly. So we make this move, and then they tell me that, uh, you know, the studios really aren't going to be ready till April. <laughs> we need you back in New York to work. I said, well, I just moved. Oh, we'll pay for you to have a place. Uh, <laughs> so Jane's in, in uh, Burke, Virginia, in our house with uh, a four-year-old and a newborn. And I would commute. I'd go Sunday night. I would fly to New York City on the company's dime. They put me up in this one-bedroom apartment three blocks from the office, 42nd and 2nd on the east side of Manhattan. And I'd work through Friday. I'd get on a plane Friday, fly back home. And they, you know, they took care of all of this. I did that for like, uh, I don't know how, you know, four months. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we eventually moved down there. And still, while all this is going on, this move, et cetera, there's still stories out there about UPI's financial issues. Well, one of the things that I benefited from working for UPI and traveling around the country to different sporting events was meeting other people from other radio networks, the people who do the hiring, the other broadcasters. So I got to be friends with a lot of them, and uh, one of them was a guy named Larry Michael. Now, Larry's made history recently with the Washington football team, but I'll let people Google that. But anyway, uh, a mutual, and we had taken a pay cut at UPI, and they were looking for a weekend sports anchor. Weekend. And the job paid more than I was making full-time at UPI. I go, well, I got, and I didn't have to move. They were based in Crystal City, Virginia, so this was a, you know, going across the street, right. working for somebody else. So that's what I did. I took the job. Now, they were two 12-hour shifts. You on, took the job at Mutual. Yes, it was yeah. the Mutual Radio Network, which would later become, within a few years, Westwood One. Now, was this at the time when Larry King was king of Mutual? Live from Washington, D.C., <laughs> it's the Larry King Show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Which, by the way, if we're looking for a WBT connection... The Larry King Show features interviews with interesting guests, telephone calls from across North America, and is a presentation of the Mutual Broadcasting System. And now the host of the program, here's Larry. Thank you very much, uh, Paul. Good evening on this Friday night, Saturday morning. Start of another night of the Larry King Show. Wind up of another week. Uh, the Larry King Show played uh, overnights on BT. I know because I used to listen to Henry Bogan, and then when Henry would sign off, then it would be the famous Mutual Chirp. <laughs> and then came Larry King and then Jim Bohannon on the weekends. So uh, Via satellite. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, right. so Mutual. Was Mutual a lot different than UPI? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's where I, you know, in, in my days at Mutual, I started there in, uh, the last thing I ever did for UPI Radio was the Super Bowl in San Francisco in 85 when Montana beat Marino. And I left two weeks later to go work for Mutual in my weekend shift. So wait, you did play-by-play -play of the Super Bowl? No, no, no. Oh. I was there covering okay. any, anything I did for UPI Radio. I was there as a reporter. Reporter, okay. You could do updates back then every quarter. You could, and we would go in the locker room. We'd be there all week. Yeah. And basically, we were a service, and you know this. Uh, the local sports guys across the country would either have AP or UPI or some service to feed them audio. Mm -hmm. And you know, we would do interviews with players, with coaches. We would actually edit the interviews and then send them out to all the stations around the country. So, And then you would get a list, typed out list, uh, on the wire. 
and it would say, Joe Montana, 15 seconds, excited to face Dan Marino. Out cue, great game. Mm-hmm. So that's what we were doing. And we would do some, we would do interview shows and stuff like that, but that was most of the job, and along with doing sports casts in the morning or, or afternoon, depending on the shift you were working. So that's what I was doing. But I always had this desire since I had left Alliance. I did some minor league baseball in Buffalo. It was the only play-by-play I did. And they only did weekend home games. But I was still doing some baseball. It was double-A. So I, I, I kind of got the play-by-play thing, the itch there a little bit. But when I, I you know, with, with Mutual, Mutual did Notre Dame. They did college football. They did the National Football League. They did basketball. And I thought, you know, if I go to Mutual, hopefully I can get back into doing play-by-play. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. I worked the weekend shift for a couple of years, and then gradually this other guy left who was doing afternoon, so I would do some afternoons, some weekends, and then I kept pleading. And you'll appreciate this story, because I, w- I do want to tell people about the golf play-by-play you helped edit, which helped me get this job with the PGA Tour. Well, again, <laughs> since I uh, helped edit that, I have the original audio. Okay. We'll get to that. Yes. Okay. So my boss says... I said, look, I want to do play, you know, play-by-play. Because in the meantime, I had actually gotten in some interest. WFAN was born in New York City in like 86, something like that. Mm-hmm. So all the New York radio stations suddenly realized, you know, maybe we better hire a sports guy. Even like uh, Wins. And it was Wins. I knew the uh, GM there. Guy calls me up. He says, hey, would you like to come back here and just do sports? We need to beef up the and just, you know, sports cast and stuff. I'm like, yeah, maybe. And, I, and they kept putting me off about doing play-by-play. So I went for the interview, and it went okay. And I came back, and my boss finally says, he says, look, uh, we can give you a shot doing play-by-play, but I need, I need a, uh, some play-by-play from you. And I said, well, I got some high school stuff. I, I don't want high school stuff. He said, do me a favor. The Redskins are playing uh, this weekend. Uh, just take a tape recorder, call the game off the TV just so I can have something. Okay, so I bring the tape recorder home. I've got the game on. And it's not easy, as, as many people are finding out in these days, when a lot of play-by-play guys are in a studio yeah. calling whatever sport they're calling. Football's not the easiest because you've got this condensed screen. You're not sure exactly what yard line the guy makes the catch. You're not sure who hit the quarterback when you know, you're watching the ball going downfield. Anyway, so I'm doing this tape, and I just, it didn't sound good. It wasn't great. And I suddenly realized, well, Bill, you've got a recorder. I started taping the game in the second quarter. Taped the second quarter, went back, watched every play, wrote down what happened, and then played the recorder as I was, boy, did I sound great. <laughs> I knew who was going to make the catch before the guy made the catch. Hey, prophetic. So I, set, I, I give this tape, and, uh, hey, that was great. You know, love to use you. So in, uh, it was September of 87. I did my very first broadcast for the old Mutual Radio Network, and it was a college football game between Penn State and Boston College up in the old, uh, was it Sullivan Stadium in B.C.? Sounds right. Yeah. I'll look it up. Yeah, It was the old Patriots Stadium, and for some reason, because it was Penn State, they were playing this game there. And that was my first game. And my only uh, really regret about all of it was my dad had passed away that April, so he had never heard me on a broadcast like that before. So that was that was the one thing. And I thought about him that night as I was getting ready to do this broadcast, and I knew, you know, he's up above, he's going to be smiling. Uh, but that was the one sad thing about that night. But that, that led to, I was good at it, and they said, look, got some NFL. So in 1988, 
until I left Mutual in 92, that became Westwood One uh, during that time, uh, I was doing, and I got to do some college basketball too. So that's where the play-by-play, I was back into doing what I got into this business to do after a sojourn that had lasted you know, six, seven years. So with you, it, there wasn't a whole lot of watching someone else do it and mimicking that. It was uh, you uh, hit the ground running, feeling your way out yourself. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's a great story about about the watching the TV and then, <laughs> hey, wait a minute, I can roll that back. And, and and with football, there's a lot of peripheral vision that you don't, you can't see with that square screen that you can see when you're in the right. open air, right? I mean, that's you important. Know, I'm, I'm fortunate this year because... Uh, I am now with Compass Media. When Compass contacted us about this year, they said, look, there's three ways we're going to do this. Uh, one, you're going to be on-site. Two, you'll be in the visiting team stadium broadcasting the game. Or you'll be in a studio, and they're based, uh, they have studios in Culver City in L.A. And uh, so I'm hoping, geez, I, w- I just want to be at the game. Yeah. So that's what we're doing. Uh, we're we're, we're going to be on-site. So... Um, so where are we now? We're, we're, you're at uh, Mutual? Mutual, then Westwood won, and this is, I started there in 85. Play-by-play began with them in 87, and through the 91 season, I was doing, and even in the early 92, I was, and then college basketball got thrown in there. Uh, so I was doing that and doing sports casts, and, you know, we'd cover, we used to cover fights. Uh, we had a deal with Sugar Ray Leonard. I don't know how many times I went out to Vegas to cover fights. Not only when Leonard was fighting, but then Leonard would be like an analyst for us. And we weren't doing play-by-play, but we'd do a lot of pre-fight stuff, do shows from out there. But with you, I mean, this is fascinating to me because I've talked to various people and everybody has their story. But with you, uh, a lot of it sounds very instinctive in the early days. I mean, you were a sports fan. You grew up loving sports, but there wasn't necessarily someone else's playbook that you were you were using. Uh, you were, were doing a lot of these things because you're a fan at, at heart, and you kind of feel your way through the beginnings of of each sport, and then look look where you rose. I mean, that's it's pretty remarkable. I well, think. I, I will tell you that I mentioned Van Miller, uh, the voice of the Bills. And I would later meet Van because I was doing Falcons and then Panthers, and he was still the voice of the Bills. We lost Van a few years ago. Fasten your seatbelts. It's playoff time. The Bills and the Oilers ready to get it on in an AFC wild card game. And the road to the Super Bowl, Project Pasadena, starts here at Orchard Park, New York, this afternoon. And uh, so he and I told him, I said, you were my idol. I, I, you know, you convinced me that this is what I should be doing for a living. And I, I've never styled my play-by-play after anybody. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, who I am and how I feel like I should call a game. But I think it was his enthusiasm. It is pandemonium! It is pandemonium! It is fantastic! And the Bills have won it! The Bills have won it! That, that, that was a big thing for me. I think when I was the voice of the Falcons and I think Panther fans, if they remember the stuff I did, uh, it was about being exciting, bringing the moment to the fan. Uh, being honest with fans when things weren't going well. And then my other hero was Kurt Gowdy. Hi, everybody. Kurt Gowdy of NBC Sports. Everybody's asking about this 1972 World Series. Kurt was the... If Kurt Gowdy was doing something for NBC, you knew it was a big event. The AFL has proven 
itself to America. Joe Namath and the New York Jets have defeated the Baltimore Colts 16-7 in an amazing upset. And being an old AFL guy like I was, Kurt was the voice of NBC. He did a lot of the AFL, you know, the football games. But, you know, Kurt did everything. and he was So those were the two guys in my childhood who I had great admiration for, loved what they did, but I never... It wasn't like a style that I wanted. Mm-hmm. It, it was more appreciation of enjoying what you were going to do for a living. Well, you have uh, gotten us to the early 90s. Uh, I know the Falcons are coming. I know what comes after the Falcons. So I can see uh, Erickson Stadium in the distance here. We're, we're getting close to where uh, I remember meeting you. But uh, what else do we have left between there and, and, uh, and here? Well, uh, again, it's... I'm sitting. I I always wanted to. That was the one thing with being uh, having Van Miller as my hero. I always thought, you know what, the ideal position for me would be to be the voice of a team. Mm-hmm. So here I was doing all this network stuff, and when you're doing network games, you don't care who wins. Well, you probably do if you got some bucks on it or something, or you don't like the coach, whatever. You just want a good game, right? Just give me a good game so people are listening for four quarters. But I wanted to be a, a, a play-by-play guy for a team. So here I am. This is February of 92, and I was working a weekend shift at Mutual. Not much going on. And this guy walks by the studio. His name's George McNeely. George is still around. He's down in Florida, uh, does a lot of PGA Tour stuff as a, as a, a PR guy. And he said, hey, Bill, <laughs> did you see radio and records this week? I go, no one. He goes, the Falcons are looking for a play-by-play guy. I go, really? You know, if he doesn't walk by and tell me that... <laughs> I don't know where I am today. Maybe I'm still there. I have no idea. Have you told him this story? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, when I see him, and I tell other people, you know, George will be there, and I'll say, hey, look, see this guy here? If he doesn't walk by and tell me about this ad, because I, I really wasn't looking at the time. So I sent a uh, tape, resume to the Atlanta Falcons, and in, I think it was like May that was February, March. So in May, I get a call from the Falcons say, look, we've narrowed it down to like five guys. We're bringing you all in for interviews at different times. Can you come down to Atlanta? Well, sure. Georgia Dome was opening. It was the first year of the Dome. So uh, I fly down to Atlanta. And backstory of this is I, was, I never liked D.C. Just for some reason, never liked living there. Didn't like a lot about it. Like my job, you know, we had a nice house. We're, we're, you know, the kids were fine, but I just, you know, this was it was me, Jane and I talked about it, and I said, you know, this is, this could be a good move for us. So I go to this interview, and I met the people at the radio station first, general manager, head sales guy. And then uh, they take me down to the, they take me up to Swanee. Now, Swanee now is this thriving area. Another, you know, the Atlanta suburbs have just exploded. When I was at Swanee, there was like two gas stations, a McDonald's, <laughs> and the Falcon Inn. And that's where the team training complex was. So they take me up there, and I'm sitting in a room with Taylor Smith, the team president, Tommy Novus, the great you know, linebacker mm-hmm. who played at Texas and was an original Falcon, and Charlie Taylor, who was the PR guy. And as soon as the interview starts, I knew I had a good chance for this job because Taylor Smith, the team president, looks at me and he says, Bill, we're flattered you applied for this position. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is good. So I go through the interview process, and uh, it wasn't long after that, WSB called me and said, hey, we'd like to offer you the job, three-year contract, and uh, I accepted it. 
No regrets. Loved Atlanta. I worked with Jeff Van Note for three years. One of the sweetest guys you'll ever meet. Longtime Falcon. Played forever for the team. Uh, we had a great house. Kids, I mean, it was just... I think back then, and Jane and I, we talk about how things change in your life. Mm-hmm. And I never envisioned Leave. leaving the Atlanta Falcons. Just like a number of years later, <laughs> I never envisioned <laughs> leading the Carolina Panthers. But stuff happens, and I had no control over it. And and this involved the, the Atlanta Braves, oddly enough, because I got there in 92 to do the Falcons, the Georgia Dome opening. First play in the Georgia Dome, by the way, by the Falcons in a preseason game, a... 75-yard touchdown pass. Chris Miller to Michael Haynes. A little trivia there. First play ever. Crowd is going crazy. So um, I have my homework assignment to find this play. <laughs> I will find it. I, I, we'll see. <laughs> it was a preseason game, and not, not many people care. But it was the first offensive play for the Falcons. Okay, I might not dome. find it. No, you might not find it. <laughs> All right, Falcon football at their own 24 as they move from left to right. Mike Pritchard, slot right, goes in motion left. Tony Smith is the lone running back. Chris Miller will throw on first down. Deep down the near sideline. Michael Haynes is there. He's got it at the 30, at the 20. He could go. Touchdown, Falcons. <laughs> On the first play from offense. Oh, what a way to open that door. So, uh, three years doing this, but all during, you know, the WSB had lost the Atlanta Braves after 91. The Braves go to the World Series in 91. They go to a competing radio station. WSB can't handle this because all of a sudden the Braves, and people know the Braves around here, they stay, Bobby Cox, all those guys, mm-hmm. Glavin and Smoltz, you know, they go on this tear for years. So during this time period, three years I'm doing the Falcons, SB wants the Braves back. Well, the Falcons weren't all excited about that. So I do three years. Jerry Glanville coached for two. June Jones my last year, as it turns out. And the Falcons change radio stations. SB wants them. We still want you. And the Falcons go, no, you got the Braves back. We're going to go somewhere else. So they go to this FM rocker. And back in those days, if you remember, a guy named Norm Pattis, who was might have been with Westwood One, started. They, they, they had a lot of FM rockers that were getting involved in getting NFL rights. And that happened in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, they want me to be the play-by-play guy. The Falcons want me to be the play-by-play guy. But uh, I was the morning guy at WSB. I was compensated by the radio station, not the team. And this FM rocker says, well, you know, we don't, we have no place for you here. Right. So it's just the games. Got to take a pay cut. What? <laughs> and I, I did not want to leave. Jane, I, Jane says I can't do that. <laughs> no more pay cuts, Bill. <laughs> so in the meantime, a friend of mine, Scott, Scott Kreitz, who was a salesperson at WSB when I first got to Atlanta, had come to Charlotte to help set up the Carolina Panther radio network. We had stayed in touch. I told him of my frustrations with the Falcons. And uh, he contacted me and says, Bill, why don't you come? You should interview up here. You know, you'd be great up here. So that's what I did. I was still negotiating. I was trying to get more money out of the radio station and the Falcons. I, come, I came here. I met with uh, Rick Jackson, who mm-hmm. was the GM here. Right. I met with uh, Mark Richardson. Their, their offices were at the Carillion building. So this is probably March. When I came up here, you know, everything returns to some place, and the Panthers were down at Winthrop. <laughs> Lo and behold, <laughs> who knows? Who knew all these years later they would end up back in South Carolina? But that's where they were practicing, down at Winthrop, because the stadium hadn't been built yet. 
Now, do you mean Wofford or Winthrop? No, no, no. Winthrop okay. was there. Okay. Now, training camp was Wofford. Okay. But when they were just working out. Gotcha. Gotcha. With the team, they, the players they had, it was at Winthrop. Okay. And, in fact, during the regular season, that's where it was, that first season at, at Winthrop. Now, so, did it intrigue you? Because you say you loved Atlanta so much, and, and that was a period of time where Atlanta sports, uh, I mean, the Braves, they've they been bad for so long. They used to have those famous bumper stickers in the 80s that said, Go Braves and take the Falcons with you, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, but the Braves were blowing up. That was when Dion played for them, right? Oh, jeez. And, and, and you, I, I could do a whole podcast with you on uh, the Jerry Glanville <laughs> stories that, that you told me when when we worked together, which we'll get to in a little bit. But so uh, Atlanta is a great place to be, and, and you could have seen yourself there for yes, the duration. I could, yes, but exactly. I'm wondering though, was the lure of starting with a team from scratch, especially in the NFL, the fact that the Panthers were brand new and would be starting from zero? Eight years ago, Jerry Richardson had a dream. The dream was bringing professional football, NFL football, to the Carolinas. Eight years later, that dream comes true. The Saturday the Carolina Panthers play their first regular season home game against the St. Louis Rams. Being that a, a initial voice, was that something that intrigued you about this situation? It, it was. It, it was intriguing. I still, when I when I think about it, our, my first impression of Uptown Charlotte was not much. Now you got to remember, this is well. That's because uh, it wasn't much, right? <laughs> uh, in fact, I remember when I came up here for one of the interviews, and I told Jane, I said, "Geez, I said, you know this." Because we came up on like a Friday, and I think they had us at the Marriott at Trade and Tryon, which was fine. Nice hotel. And and aside for those of you listening that don't know, Bill now lives in Uptown Charlotte. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and we're you know this is like five o'clock in the end. There's nothing. There's nothing going on. I go. Right. What's with this town? And uh, so I, you know, so I go to this interview, and I'm sitting in with Charlie Dayton, the PR uh-huh. guy, right? Mike McCormick, the team president, and Bill Polian. Now, Polian hears that I'm a Buffalo guy, so I knew that helped me to some extent. But I'm going into this meeting thinking Polian's the guy that's going to grill me. I mean, you, know, you know, what's my play-by-play style? But it wasn't. Bill was great. It was McCormick. <laughs> McCormick was like, he said, look, if we let you watch practice, are you going to go telling, uh, you know, on the radio what's going on? Are you going to tell other reporters that we're doing this? I go, well, no, why would I do that? Why had a guy do that? And Because he had been with the Redskins. Right. I had a guy do that in Washington, D.C. I made sure that guy was out of there, you know? And I'm like, I'm going, oh, wow, you know? And so I meet with Mark Richardson, and I meet with uh, – I don't think I'd met with Mark first. I, I, it was all Rick Jackson and the radio people here. Yeah, because before you go any further, people – and this is somewhat inside radio, but I'll, I'll, I'll say it for context. When the Panthers started – uh, unlike today when everything is under one roof, which is Bank of America Stadium for the Panthers, when the Panthers started, uh, a lot of it was originating out of this building here, WBT, and the rest of it was out of Capital Broadcasting. Yep. It was a joint venture. Yes, yes. So, uh, you know, BT carries the Panthers today, but it's a much different relationship than it was then. And as I refresh my memory on this, I had talked with Rick Jackson, a bunch of the radio people, and they had decided I was the guy. Yeah. And they said, you know, we're... We're going to hire you. And I'm thinking, okay, good. And then they called me back the next day because I guess they had told the team. Mm-hmm. And the team said, well, we want to talk to him. So that's when I came back to Charlotte, Mark Richardson first, and then the guys uh, down at, at Winthrop. So, I, again, I, I felt pretty confident about uh, the job. But the Falcon position was still there. And I remember, I remember Char- was Charlie, 
Charlie Dayton said to me, he said, you know, uh, are, are you going to, uh, you know, hold one against the other? And like, if we make you an offer, are you then going to go? I said, no, that's not how I work. Mm-hmm. I said, I've got their offer. When you guys tell me what your offer is. So Rick Jackson called me. I was going on a golf trip. I was driving over to Kiowa from Atlanta. And he called me on the phone. He said, you're the guy, Bill. I'm going to hire you. So that was probably in March because I remember I was I was there in April for the draft mm-hmm. at Carowinds. <laughs> we, had, <laughs> we had our big Carowinds show at the draft. Like, what did that have to do with the Panthers? I don't know. but uh, And then that began a... Uh, 10-year run? Well, I have to tell you, the first time I ever saw you, I didn't meet you that day. I think I met you later on when you started doing the morning show. The first time I ever saw you, though, because, you know, I grew up working here. And uh, before, I guess this was what, this would have been uh, 1995, the, the first season. And so one of the things I did when I was going to school at Davidson is I would come here and I would fill in on shifts, production shifts that they needed when other people would take time off. So I'm down here one day. I'm sitting in that studio across the hall, and I'm sitting in that room uh, answering phones for Henry Bogan. <laughs> All right, so and Henry's in there, and I'm in there, and I don't know who else, maybe a couple of other people. And we're talking, and then all of a sudden Henry goes, shh, everybody, pipe down, listen, listen, watch. Bill Rosinski walks past the window, and he says, there goes the voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, coming from Henry, that's very flattering. Yeah, I figured you'd like that. Yes. I'll never, ever forget that. <laughs> but, I mean, you were a big deal when you got here because, I mean, obviously the Panthers were the biggest deal going. Yeah. But uh, around the radio parts, everybody wanted to know once we got the rights to the team, all right, what, who's going to call the games? And, you know, Steve Martin had called the Hornets mm-hmm. games for so long, and Steve's an institution in this town. But who was going to be the voice of the NFL? And I remember, there goes the voice. <laughs> and a uh, little that I know how much I'd intertwine with the voice over the yeah. years, but but uh, Henry was Henry was reverent <laughs> as the voice went by. So anyway, that's so, cool. So so you start off. Uh, you have arrived in Carolina. Rick Jackson's told you you are the voice, mm-hmm. and you start building not only a team but obviously a radio network. Yeah, uh, that was all part of it. Uh, we would go on uh, you know some client trips. Uh, we'd visit radio stations for the most part and talk to, and we'd do some things with clients. And uh, that, that, was, that was all part of the deal. And then I had to meet, you know, who else was going to be on the broadcast? Jim Zoki had been a radio station no-brainer. I mean, Jim was going to be on the broadcast in some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. And who was my co- analyst going to be? And then I find out it's Roman Gabriel. And I find out it's Roman Gabriel, and I'm thinking to myself, I used to watch him on <laughs> on Sunday, those late games from uh, the Coliseum in Los Angeles, and he was this larger than life. He was on Gilligan's Island. Kawalona. <laughs> you know, was, you know, he, he did movies on TV shows, uh, blah blah blah. And uh, I was like, I was like in awe of Roman Gabriel because he was like this. I don't know if he was a hero of mine, but I remember watching him on TV in the late '60s because he was just as he was a huge man. For those days, I mean, he was like 6'5". Right. And back in those days in the 60s, their players weren't that big. And here was this larger-than-life guy. So here was this broadcast team. And I think the first time we ever got... I, I had met Jim when I was here at the radio station. So Jim and I started a relationship then. Roman, I think the first time I ever met him was at a uh, training camp at Wofford practice. They, they were setting up shop at Wofford. And I talked to Charlie Dayton. I said, look, I'm going to come down. Uh, okay, if I hang out and watch. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I come down, and in the back of my mind, I'm expecting them to have a room for me. (laughs) (laughs) 
And this was news to Charlie and the other Panther people, but they were nice enough. I remember showing up because I was like, oh, where am I going to stay? <laughs> like, really? <laughs> so they, they, they gave me a, a, a dorm room. I don't even think I had any sheets on the bed the first night. <laughs> but eventually they welcomed me uh, at camp all the time. I had a dorm room. And I will never forget the very first Carolina Panther training camp. So this is July of 95. And I had just driven down from, or driven up from Atlanta, pulling the parking lot at uh, Wofford. And I'm walking down towards the practice fields and out from the, you know, the locker rooms down the, down the slope are McCormick and Pullian. And I'm watching these two guys and I'm trying to catch up to them, but I'm, eh, maybe I'll just stay back. And, and I'm just looking at these two guys as they're heading out to their very first training camp practice. And I'm thinking to myself, what the hell have they gotten into here? <laughs> you know, here's two guys, Hall of Famers. Well, Bill would eventually be a Hall of Famer. Mike was already in it. And what's this going to be like? What's this whole experience going to be like with these guys? So they walk out on the practice field, and I started going with the other media. I'm just hanging out behind the fence, you know, roped-off area. You guys can watch from here. And I'll never forget, I'd been there like 20 minutes. And I don't know if it was Charlie. might have been Bruce Spate, Lex Sant, part of that first PR crew. Mm -hmm. One of them walked up to me and said, Bill, you can come in here. You can go just, you know, don't get hit, don't get hurt. But you can come in here and watch practice. You can walk around. Don't worry about it. And it was that, it was that way for 10 years, which was really, really cool. When, uh, when I say Jim Zoki, what, what comes to mind? What, what, uh, what about Jim Zoki? Uh, to me, it's always the sense of humor. Uh, always, when you listen to our broadcasts, and, and when you get to know Jim, he's like that. He's that way all the time. And when you're on the air, even doing when we'd be in here doing whatever shows we were doing, mm -hmm. there was always that. I don't know if he's got an ego. I don't. I've never seen it. Uh, he he knows what he's talking about. He does his homework, and he's he has this knack for throwing in the right line at the right time without stepping on. The play-by-play -play guy or the analyst, it was always, if you go back through these, these broadcasts that we did for 10 years, I'll never forget when we beat Dallas to go to the NFC Championship game. And I remember saying, I was like yelling, we're going to Green Bay. We're going to the frozen tundra next Sunday. And then Jim goes, I got a hankering for a hunk of cheese. <laughs> and it was just stuff like that. Uh, I remember a play. Uh, it was this botched play the Panthers ran in St. Louis, I think. There was like a fumble. The ball got kicked. It rolled around. And then finally we recovered in the end zone for a touchdown. And Jim goes, let's run that play again. <laughs> I mean, it was just stuff stuff like that that I, you know, I, I think it may, when you think about our broadcast, this is my opinion. When you think about uh, the 10 years that we were together, and it was Roman for seven and then Eugene Robinson the last three that I was around, uh, there was just this chemistry that we had, we, and even with Eugene and, and Roman, that we, we all kind of knew what the other guy was might say, Ma well, and many times wouldn't say anything well, when they uh, hung me out to dry on a few calls. Well, speaking of not <laughs> saying uh, a specific word that would have gotten everybody in trouble if it had been uh, transmitted over the air, you know which one I'm talking about there, right? Tune in next week when Bill, sa yeah, Bill says the F word, yes. <laughs> that was Atlanta. Chris Chan, I mean, we were horrible that day. I think that was Kerry Collins' last start. I think he, like, quit the next day. <laughs> and uh, I'll never forget, Chris Chandler drops back to pass. We're in the Georgia Dome in Atlanta. He gets hit. He fumbles. 
Mike Barrow, one of our linebackers, and somebody else, both went for the football, ran into each other, knocked each other back, and Chandler got the ball back. That's when I go, why didn't they just fall on the damn ball? And then Jim followed with... Uh, well, he said, tune in next week when Bill, Bill says... says the F- Bill says the F word. <laughs> yes. You know, we go back over those 10 years, and they were very special. Now, you mentioned Roman Gabriel, and uh, you were starstruck to a degree about uh, Roman when you first met him. What about working with him? Did that always uh, linger, or did the relationship change in more of a, uh, you know, you guys are, are, are pals and close friends, or was there well, we, kind of a, a morphing of the two? It, we, kind of both. I mean, we were bosom buddies, but we were friends. Right. I mean, he, he, invite, he, he had a lot of charity golf tournaments during the summers when he was working with us and he would always invite me and I would try to get to as many as I could and he would always appreciate that and we would uh, you know we'd go out to dinner when we'd go on road trips we would we would go out and have dinner together and chat and we didn't hang out all the time and you know he had his own life and uh, but I will never forget in my first go around with Mutual slash Westwood One one of my color analysts was Jack Snow well Jack had played at Notre Dame but he was on the Rams when Roman played so I will never forget, we were going, and he was on the Rams, he was the Rams radio a- uh, analyst in L.A., and then he moved with him to St. Louis. So I remember going to St. Louis one time, and I called up Jack, and Jack and Roman had a, I don't know if they had the greatest relationship ever. <laughs> they, would, they were friends, they would talk, but it wasn't like they, they chatted a whole heck of a lot. And I said, hey, look, Jack, coming into town with Roman, would you like to go out to dinner with us? He goes, Rosie, he always called me Rosie. He goes, Rosie, Sure. You know, just where and when. I said, well, you pick a place. It's your town. So Roman and I met Jack at this restaurant in St. Louis. And I remember walking in, and I, and the restaurant's packed. We get this table in the middle of the restaurant, and I remember people staring. Because they think they knew who Jack was, and i got to believe a lot of them go, that's Roman Gabriel. Yeah. So the three of us sat down for dinner. I never said a word for two hours. <laughs> and I listened to those guys talk about their days with the Rams, doing... You know, Roman did a movie with John Wayne, The Undefeated. John Henry, there's a box canyon about four miles from here. Not forage to fill him? No, sir, but there's enough to hold him. There's something else. I rode across two trails. One was wagons and horses. The second trail was many riders, at least 40 and maybe 60. The second trail ran just out of sight of the first. Well, if you were to tell me that a year ago, and. Virginia or Tennessee, I'd suspect ambush. Look that way to me. Jack was on Bewitched. Oh, my stars! Boy, Gabe, you really uncorked one this time. I, I meant a four-legged ram, not an L.A. ram. Which one are you? I'm, uh... Uh... I'm Jack Snow. Any relation to Jack Frost? <laughs> and I was just listening to these guys tell these stories, and it, it, it to, to this day, this is probably 90, I don't know, 8, 9, something like that. So, we're, you know, we're 21 years later, and uh, it was one of the most special moments I've ever had, just not saying a word. I'll never forget, I was Elizabeth Montgomery lover as a kid watching Bewitched. Had a huge crush on her. Where am I? You're in Hinkley's department store. Uh, Patterson, New York. We uh, were playing the Dallas Cowboys in Dallas, Texas. <laughs> I was running a down-and-out pattern. I've heard of the long bomb, but, boy, this is ridiculous. Send him back, Henry. So he did Bewitched. I said, Jack, tell me the truth. Scale of 1 to 10. 1, the biggest B.I., you know, you know. Mm-hmm. 10, 
the most wonderful person in the world. What was Elizabeth Montgomery like? And he looked at me and he goes, Rosie, she was a 12. <laughs> <laughs> and I just started, I go, thank you, thank you. That's just what I wanted to hear. So the, the iconic voice of the Panthers, <laughs> the guy who, I mean, his booming voice, uh, you think nothing but him talking, did not speak for two hours. No, it was unbelievable. In the, the heyday of you as a Panthers uh, play-by-play guy, because you're sitting in the in the midst of yeah. these two legends. Um, so, and... It's it's interesting. I think about Roman. I, I had the opportunity to go come watch some of your broadcasts every once in a while because uh, Langton would let me in the room. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember that season that for season one or season two, uh, Miller Lite had this ad campaign where they, <laughs> they you know life is so good, and you come back from the breaks and Roman would go, "Life is so 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 so." And I, I looked over at you, thinking, "Are you are, come on? Can you hurry this up? The next play is about to begin. Life is so good." <laughs> he was a trip. And Jim and I used to joke because he always called it Miller's. <laughs> Miller's Light. Call open a Miller's Light. And Jim and I would like look at each other and wouldn't say a word. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Eugene Robinson. Yeah. He was the, the final color guy you had on that, uh, on that network. Mm-hmm. What about Eugene? Well, Eugene was interesting because he had played for the Panthers his final season mm-hmm. in the league. And then I was actually say Roman left at an odd time. Uh, I think we were getting ready for training camp or something when Roman decided he wasn't coming back. <laughs> so you got to scramble for somebody. And I think Eugene was around and he had he expressed some interest. Eugene was funny. Roman was was a quarterback, so he's very... You know, it's all about the offensive plays and uh, why did, Why was it, you know, he would always get on Collins for his footwork. You know, this guy, you know, he just, you know, he, footwork's bad, blah, 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 blah. Eugene was a defensive guy. And so that was where his angle was coming from. Mm-hmm. You know, when I worked in Atlanta with Jeff Van O, Jeff was a center. So Jeff's talking about line play and why did this play work, this, this play didn't. I will never forget. <laughs> We're in Tampa. We're playing the Bucks. And uh, we're in the booth. Right. And this, this, the Panthers are on defense. And all of a sudden, Eugene jumps up and he's yelling at Mike Minner for what the play's coming. <laughs> I mean, we're on the air. Mike Minna, Mike Minna, it's going to be a blah, blah, blah. And we're like, we're 10 miles up in the broadcast. And I look, I go, Eugene, he can't hear you up here. <laughs> but that's the way he was. He, he brought this enthusiasm uh, and, that, that, and that different perspective defensively for how a game was playing out. Handle your business, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) And I will say this, the ex-clown play. And now they're faced with a third and 14 from their own 31-yard line. Steve Smith, first play, second overtime, St. Louis, to get us into the NFC Championship game. If you listen to that call, you will hear Eugene in the background. Because I'll go, it's Smith. He's at the 40. He's at the 35. And Eugene, it's over. Blitz again coming. DeLone pumps. He's got time. Throws down. Phil Smith at the 45 to the 40. It's over. free. It's 20, over. 10, 5. Touchdown. Woo. Touchdown, Steve Smith. 69 yards. And we are going to the NFC Championship game. And what an incredible win. You know, I was always. Woo. We will holler at the Bills. <laughs> holler at the boys. Holler at the boys. Holla at your boy. That's what I'm talking about. Play-by-play guys do not want to be stepped on. Uh-huh. But that moment, as that game is played out. Holla at you back in Carolina. Eliminates the kicker factor, doesn't it? <laughs> I know. Eliminate the kicker. That couldn't have been more perfect for people listening to that game, if you were a Panther fan, to have me calling it and having him in the background going, it's over. Wow. <laughs> ah. Well. 
How about them Panthers the cardiac cats do it again in the second quarter double OT here in St. Louis to me that's one of the that's another example of Eugene and he wasn't like that a lot he didn't you know every once in a while he would talk about some guy getting the snot kicked out of him but he would never step on me but he picked there were a few times when he would and they were always perfect and that was probably the ultimate well, you led me to uh, one thing I certainly want to hit on before we uh, leave the Panthers era. Iconic calls, iconic moments. I think that maybe uh, either the Super Bowl moment where, where hey, Charlotte, uh, there is a Super Bowl. But talk to me for a second here about uh, a handful of your favorite moments of your play-by-play calling during the Panthers years. Well, I think the first one was, I, you know, I talk about that win over Dallas. In the, you know, here was the uh, second-year team that uh, is about to go to the NFC Championship game. And the Cowboys were highly touted. Aikman and Irvin and Dion and you know, Emmett Smith. I mean, this, these were icons in the league, all Hall of Famers, future Hall of Famers. And here they come into Charlotte. And we beat them. And I'll never forget... Uh, you know, Sam, that, that, that one, the Sam Mills interception, and I will go back to the first one, you know, the, uh, the, the shovel pass with Brister for the first Panther win ever. Brister, oh, shovel pass. Oh. Intercepted. Mills with the interception. He could go. He's at the 15, 10, 5. Mills has a touchdown. Oh. Oh. That's a call I'll remember for the rest of my life because of what what it was. Right. You know, Sam picked it off. It was a crummy game anyway. And we lost five, and we're playing them, and they weren't very good. And right near the end of the half, he picks off this pass, goes for a touchdown. That's that's probably the first call, I think, that comes to mind. But the one that we, I remember, we, we were about to win the game. Mills with the interception. And uh, we had done the Green Bay. Jim had done the hankering for a hunk of piece of cheese. And uh, I'll never forget saying... The Panthers have done it. The King is dead. Count by Aikman, back to pass. Puts it up down the middle of the field. Intercepted by Sam Mills. He was going to take a knee and keeps going to the 10. Mills to the 5. Still going towards the end. Oh, he got to the 1. He got to the 1. He got <laughs> Sam Mills with the icing on the cake. Oh. With 1 to go. We're going to Green Bay. We're going to the frozen tundra next Sunday. I uh, got a hankering for a hunk of cheese. The Panthers have done it. And that was about Dallas and their reign. And I, you know, I, some people do remember that. I think uh, Scott Fowler from The Observer, when he was writing a book about uh, that, that uh, 95, 96 team, that uh, he mentioned that call in there. So that's that's one. There was the he hate me, we love you. You know, Rod Smart had been he hate me in the old XFL. Mm-hmm. And we're playing the Saints. And he's returning kicks. He starts right at the goal line. And I remember he's bringing it out. And by the 40-yard line, our 40, uh, the guy Mitch Berger had kicked off, had a chance. He was the last guy to have a chance to tackle him. And I knew he was gone. This is from the 50-yard line. Something, you know, and this is, this is all in, within milliseconds in your mm-hmm. head. Like, what am I going to say? He's gone. You know, I just count down the yardage. And then I had called him. He hate me at the beginning of the call. He hate me, Rod Smart, at the goal line. So he's getting to the 40, and I'm thinking – and then I, I decided, you know, he's going to go the rest of the way for a touchdown. I finally ended it by saying, he hate me, we love you. Mitch Berger kicks off right to left, and he hate me, Rod Smart at the goal line, and he's coming out with a 
20, big hole, 30, can he get by Berger? Does, down the sideline, he's gone, 40, 30, no one's gonna catch him, he hate me, we love you, touchdown, Panthers, 100 yards. I remember Len Pascarelli from the Atlanta newspaper wrote about that call uh, a couple days later. Uh, so that stands out. The Super Bowl one, I had thought that night we were in Philly because that was the second game. Mm-hmm. We knew we were going to play the, the winner was going to play the Patriots. And so that afternoon, I'm kind of watching that game before I'm going to the stadium. And I thought to myself, I rarely thought in a game, okay, if this happens, sh- you know, what should I say? I've, you know, should I come up with something? But then I thought to myself. So I never really did that. I, I let the, the spur of the moment dictate what I was going to say for the most part. But I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, you know, you know, we were 1-15 in 15 two years ago. Right. I said, i got to say something <laughs> that, you know, will kind of sum up what this franchise has done the last two years. And then I thought to myself, you know, I remember, yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. And I'm thinking, you know, hey, yes. And now the fortunate thing about this whole thing is, remember, we were – we're the Carolina Panthers, not the Charlotte Panthers. Right. But by the time of the NFC Championship game, the only place, the, the, the networks, our, our Carolina Panther radio network could not air that broadcast. They had to carry Westwood once. So we are only on WRFX. We are not on the Carolina Panther radio network. And this is the five-year period, by the way, when the rights from the Panthers transferred from WBT, who carried the team the first five years. Mm-hmm. And then you all went, I remember it well because I was here. It was like we were in exile. <laughs> but right. uh, you guys were over on the Fox for five years before yes. coming back in 2005. But, yeah, you're right. Because of rights and all things kind of uh, converging together, the only place you could hear the uh, the local feed of the Carolina Panthers radio network was on the local station, so that was RFX. So essentially, you weren't a network that day. You were, you were one station. Yeah, we were one station, and that's why I decided to say, yes, Charlotte, there is a Super Bowl, and we're in it. I never really thought about it, but now that makes total sense. <laughs> and DeLone takes a knee, and guess what? The improbable season for the Carolina Panthers continues. Yes, Charlotte, there is a Super Bowl, and we're in it. We're going to Houston in two weeks to play the New England Patriots for the championship of the National Football League. This is incredible. What a marvelous story. Two years ago, this team had one win. And a week from today will be the second anniversary of the hiring of John Fox as the head coach of the Carolina Panthers. They've done it. They're the champions of the NFC. And I will say, after we made the switch to RFX, that's when I became a full-time employee of the Carolina Panthers because they took everything basically in-house. Yeah. RFX was carrying the games, but that was it. I mean, you know, everything. Dave was in-house. Dave Langton. Jim was, you know, part of the crew. You know, Eugene being paid by the club. So mm-hmm. it was a, an entirely Carolina Panther-run operation as opposed to what was going on here the first and that lives on today. Now that the yes. Panthers are back on WBT, none of the broadcast is produced out of here anymore. It's produced down the street. Right. Now, we're the flagship station, mm-hmm. but uh, in, in many ways, it's almost like we're just a big network affiliate. No. Um, and the, I think the, the other call I'll mention that sticks out in my mind, uh, and this is funny because the, the actual the Panther organization this summer was going back through their history and talking to some of the players uh, when we were playing Philadelphia, that same NFC Championship game, Deshaun Foster had a one-yard touchdown run. 
he took a handoff, and it's funny, when you watch the replay, you can see Brad Hoover trying to block for him just right off the center. He's trying mm-hmm. to go up the middle. There's nothing there. Mm-hmm. He bounces it outright, bounces it outright, fights off tacklers, keeps bouncing it outside, and eventually scores a touchdown. It's an incredible one-yard run. And I called the play, and then I said, on a play that took a minute and a half, blah, 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 Deshaun, and that was the headline the Panthers used this year, the play that took a minute and a half. First and goal, Carolina from the one of Philly. Fitz to Foster trying to turn the far side, gets over Hoover, bounces off the tackle, still keeps the legs turning, and dives towards the end zone, touchdown! Oh my goodness! Deshaun Foster on a play that took a minute and a half. (laughs) And I remember watching the video that NFL Films put together. And they, again, they used the call and they said, It might have taken a minute and a half, but it was symbolic of an entire season. You you asked me about calls that I remember. Um, Now, I remember the Hall of Fame game call in the preseason because the mm -hmm. Panthers played the Jaguars that inaugural Mm -hmm. season. And I remember the first touchdown. Now, I guess technically the regular season would be the first touchdown, but the first ever touchdown that anyone would call was Bob Christian in that game. First down and 10 Panthers from the Jacksonville 17-yard line. Frank Wright back to pass. Pumps, fires. Christian open at the 10. Christian at the 5. Christian dives in the end zone. Touchdown, Panthers! Bob Christian and mark it down at 340. On a Saturday afternoon at the Hall of Fame game, the Panthers with their first touchdown. Now, when you called that moment, did it occur to you? I mean, knowing you like I do, I'm sure it probably thought in your head, uh, this is this is history for this NFL team. Nobody will ever be able to say this again. Yes, I, and, and I, I really don't remember the call that much. I think I said something like that. You know, the first Panther touchdown in team history, Bob Christian. Uh, I do remember the first touchdown we ever scored uh, in a regular season game, and that was uh, Frank Reich to Pete Metzelars in Atlanta uh, in that opening game in 95 when we were down in the Georgia Dome. Uh, they scored on their opening drive. It was unbelievable. Here's this team marching downfield. And I always tell people that was the game I was most prepared for because I had just been the voice of the Falcons. I knew everybody on that team. Right Now, here I knew all the Panthers. So there wasn't a lot of game prep I needed to go into that game. And I remember he beat D.J. Johnson, cornerback on the play. So I remember that first one. Geez, I remember we, you know, we went for two to try to win that game at the end. And one of the – Garrett Graham, I think, was the guy that moved – got a false start. So Capers had to kick the field goal. We ended up losing in overtime. But, uh, yeah, the Hall of Fame game, I, I think I made radio history because I had done the Hall of Fame game the year before with the Falcons. Oh, yeah? I don't know how many radio play-by-play guys have done back-to-back <laughs> Hall of Fame games, but I did. So, Bill, one of the themes in our discussion so far, you've said several times along the way as we've talked about the places you've been, you've said several times that uh, I could have stayed there forever. We were happy. Uh, I liked the situation, my, my job and my family, and uh, I was ready to just to call it a career in that particular location, uh, whether that was Atlanta or whether that was some smaller stops before Atlanta. Uh, I, I feel sure the, the same sentiment was probably that way about uh, the Charlotte run. I mean, 10 years as the voice of the Panthers and seemed like, by all accounts, it was going to continue well beyond that. And uh, I think we know it did not. 
And uh, I, I remember when I got the news, I remember I was walking down the hall here at the station <laughs> when uh, somebody told me, and it stopped me in my tracks. And having worked with you in years after that, uh, I've heard the story off the air or off the podcast, so to speak. But uh, this is the first time uh, that I've had a chance to ask you in a format like this. And so how did that all go down? How did it end? Because it seemed like it should have continued for a long time. Yeah, I, I thought it was going to continue for a long time. Uh, it did not. Uh, it, we have to go to when the team took everything in-house to begin with because WBT was the home for the Carolina Panthers. And then after what we got into, five years, yeah. then uh, the rights changed. And the, when the rights changed, they hired me full-time as an employee. I was in the first year of that employment. I really didn't have a contract. But I had a handshake with Mark Richardson, who is one of the sons of, if, if people don't know the whole Richardson story, Jerry owned the team, and his two sons, John and Mark, were heads of different departments. Mark the business side, John the stadium side. So I had a handshake when they were doing, when they were doing this. You know, we, we need to hire this guy, that guy, the TV side. It was, it was really crazy. And I had a handshake agreement with Mark Richardson. Didn't have a contract for a couple of years. So my first year into it, I get contacted by a guy who was moving to Chicago to become the program director for the station that carries the Chicago Bears. And he said, Bill, would you like to be the voice of the Chicago Bears? And I'm thinking to myself, ah, Rosinski, that'd be a good name in Chicago. Moving to a big city like that might be cool. I like what I'm doing, but so I was interested. Yeah. And I said, look. He said, you know, we'll, we'll probably fly you in for an interview, but I need to run this by some people. And I said, look, the first thing, I'm just telling you I'm interested in listening to you. I don't need this getting leaked to the media. <laughs> Next day, <laughs> I get a call from a guy who used to be a – when I was working at UPI, I dealt with stringers all over the country, you know, interviews, tapes. And uh, I'm still half asleep. Guy used to call me Mr. Bill all the time. He goes, Mr. Bill, guy named George Offman in Chicago. I go, Mr. George, how you doing, bud? What's going on? He goes, I hear you're going to be the next voice of the Chicago Bears. <laughs> I'm going, oh, no. So later that morning, I get a call from the Panthers. A woman named Linda Ricca had been hired to run the broadcast wing radio side. Not sure she was involved in TV much. Might have been. She goes, Bill, are you still going to be the voice of the Carolina Panthers? And I said, look, and I explained the whole story to him. And I said, I got to, you know, I don't have a contract with you guys. You can get rid of me tomorrow. She goes, we'll work on that. So they did. And they gave me a contract, which came to an end the season after we went to the Super Bowl. Yeah. Super Bowl season was 2003. It was February of 2004. So we go into the 2004 season, and I know my contract's up at the end of that season. So that summer, I went to see Mark Richardson because by this time, Linda was gone. Okay. If Linda Ricker was still there when this happened, I'm pretty sure I'd still be the voice of the Carolina Panthers hmm. to this day. Linda left. This other person took over. I'm not going to name any names here unless you want me to. Then I can name names. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's fine. All right. So this other person took over. So I went to Mark because this, I didn't know what power this other guy had. And I said, can I talk to you? I was in Mark Richardson's office probably in late May, early June. And I said, look, my contract's up. I love what I'm doing. I want to stay here. 
I don't need a pay raise. Just if we can keep doing what we're doing, that's fine. And he, I'll never forget this to this day. He looked at me in the eye and he said, you should never have to worry about your family's financial security. I'm thinking, oh, this is good. <laughs> thought they liked my work, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so now we get into training camp in August. He did tell me to deal with this other person who had taken over for Linda. Mm-hmm. To talk with him, you know, get the particulars out of the way. So I go to him. Here's the deal. And what I think happened was... They they made some phone calls to other NFL teams to see what that that had guys in house who were paying to be full time employees and probably asked them what they made. They paid me very well. Part of the reason was not only was did they take away what I was doing at WBT when they hired me because mm-hmm. I was getting extra money from the station for doing morning sports and being on on the morning show. So that all went away. And I said, look, here's what they're paying me for this. This is what I'm making. They said, okay, fine. They combined it all. Well, I guess by this time, they figured uh, I was overpaid. I, was, I, I can never prove this for a fact. But I went through August, no contract. Sept- season starts in September, nothing. October, nothing. And now I'm starting to get worried. And every time I would see this boss of mine, what's the story on the contract? He'd go, well, I got to see Mark. Talk to him. And I said, well, I just saw Mark in the lunchroom if you want to go talk to him. <laughs> I'll walk you down the hall. <laughs> <laughs> right. So now we're in November, and if you remember that season, 2004 was not great. Bad start, not a bad finish. But coming off the Super Bowl season was a big yeah. disappointment, so things were not going well. In November, Scott Fowler of the Charlotte Observer wrote an article about uh, I had realized that we had been together, Jim Zoki, Dave Langton, uh, partly, you know, seven of the years with Roman. Yeah. And then the last three with Eugene. We'd been together for about 200 broadcasts. Our 200 broadcast, 200th game was coming up in San Francisco, road trip. Mentioned this to a couple of writers. And in the big picture, heck, baseball guys do 200 games in a season. If you go to the preseason playoffs, right. all that stuff. But for football, to be together for 10 years together. Yeah. is a so a couple of different writers did stories. Joe Menzer wrote one for the Winston-Salem Journal. Scott Fowler did one. And we got into, in this article, about being together. And it came up, biggest uh, off the broadcast angle, being with the team, biggest high, biggest low. And I said, well, my biggest high was John Fox giving everybody game balls from a win he had his first season in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. I still have that ball. I said my biggest disappointment was not getting an NFC championship ring. That was it. Move on. We go to San Francisco. We win. I come back. Monday, I'm doing the radio show, do the coach's TV show. And I'd had people in the organization that the article ran on Saturday, the day we flew to San Francisco. And I had people either that morning on the plane, some of the coach, assistant coaches say, hey, Bill, nice article in the paper today. I go, thanks to front office people when we got back into town. Well, then this guy, my boss, shows up at the radio show Monday night and says, hey, I need to meet with you. I'm going, hmm, okay. So I'm thinking it's about the contract. No, we actually met on a Wednesday. It was about the article. And we were across from Jerry Richardson's office. And I said, what's the story? And he said, well, he pointed across the hall. He's not happy about it. Hmm. Because I said I did not get an NFC championship ring, and I was disappointed about it. That was pretty much it. We went through how the article took place. I said other, uh, there was another writer wrote a story about us. I mean, there was nothing sinister. Right. It just came out. And uh, 
you know, we did not get championship rings, which really irked me. Uh, because that's, I, I talked to all my broadcast partners. Now, I know it wasn't a Super Bowl ring, but we didn't get them. And it was very disappointing. And then I found out the boss that I've been dealing with, he got one. He'd been there a couple years. I found out, basically I found out department heads got NFC championship rings, and it was up to the department head then. For example, Charlie Dayton, head of the communications department, made sure that all of his staff got rings, all the assistants. Our boss just took his ring, and that was it. So I was very irritated about that, and they knew that, and that happened like in May and June. This is before my meeting with Mark. So uh, from that point forward... I said, well, what about my contract? Well, we'll deal with that later. Well, what's later? It turned out to be the end of the season. And I got nothing. I got every time I asked about it, and I, I started bracing my family to tell them, I don't think they're having me back. I think I'm done. No, no, even my friends. There's no way they're getting rid of you. I go, yeah. oh, yes. So uh, as, as it came to be, we went through the season. Uh, missed out on the playoffs by a game or two. They, like I said, the team played better at the end of the year. And I remember the last game was a home game against the Saints. I came into the radio show, did the TV show, and my office was back, actually our booth, our radio booth during the games. That was my office during the week. So after I did the radio show and all that TV stuff, I got my stuff on Monday. I packed up anything that was mine and left because I said, you know what? If they call me back in just so they can escort me out of the building, that's not going to happen. And as it turned out, that Friday, I got a call saying that uh, they were, quote-unquote, going in a different direction, which is what I had kind of figured. But it was still uh, devastating to, uh, to me, my ego, to the 10 years we'd, we'd worked together, to the, the solid work I thought we did as a broadcast team. And it was all about being vindictive, I guess, because we never talked money. There was never any negotiation about anything. It was basically they wanted to make sure I got through the season, and then that was so, going to be it. So this is interesting. You uh, you went through most of that season then with somewhat of a a little bit of a cloud over you. At least you mm -hmm. knew that cloud was there. But, yeah. but So how many people around you had any clue that that was going on? I don't know if anybody – you know, a couple of guys uh, in, in, in the TV department, and I'm, I'm sure Jim, I may have mentioned – I had to have mentioned something to Jim and even right. Dave Langton, our producer, and Greg Brannon and Mike Kraft, who were in the TV department at the time. I think they knew what I was going through. And uh, in the meantime, I had tried to look for an agent, figuring I was going to lose my job to get another you know, opportunity in the business. Uh, so, yeah, that, that hung over. And, in fact, the last game we did, the New Orleans game, I did, at the end of the broadcast, say something like, and I can't remember my exact words, but if this is the last time we're together mm -hmm. doing these games, and, you know, I thank the fans and the guys I worked with. And... So, um, like I said before I asked this question that we knew we'd end up talking about here, uh, I said... Uh, it was a shock. Uh, I've come to find mm -hmm. out, uh, as you've just explained this, that it wasn't such a shock to you. But no. I, I imagine there was some point, even though you saw the writing on the wall and expected that this might be the way things would go, I guess there had to have been a point when it became official where you kind of sat down and said, wow, it really happened. 
Oh, yeah, and it happened that afternoon. Yeah. In fact, it was funny. My younger son, Bobby, was home from App State, and he got the heck out of the house. <laughs> he was there. I told him, I said, because Jane was not home at the time, Jane, my wife. And uh, I said, this isn't, uh, isn't going to be a good weekend. And uh, so she came home. I told her. She was devastated. We both cried because yeah. it was over. But but what I will remember from that day forward, well, I remember two things. One, this is how sometimes writers break stories. About two or three hours after it happened, I was just sitting at home doing nothing, just sitting there thinking about stuff. Phone rings. It's Darren Gant, who was working for the Rock Hill Herald at the time. Uh-huh. He goes, uh, hey, so what's your story? And I said, who told you? And he said, who told me what? <laughs> <laughs> and, and Darren is, is still around these parts, by the way. Right. He said, I said, he said, who told me what? I said, that the team's not having me back. I'm done. He goes, what? <laughs> I said, why were you calling? He says, ah, no, I knew you were, you know, your contract was up, but I was just calling to find out what was going on. And <laughs> if you'd heard anything, I go, well, I heard something and it's over with. So he puts it out on the Rock Hill Herald website. And from that point on, you know, it's on FNZ, the sports station. It's uh, I got AP writers calling me. I got the Observer calling me. Uh, it was nuts. And we were going out that night with a bunch of friends to see a play in Charlotte. And by the way, this is well before the age of Twitter, so it's not like <laughs> yes, it was a, right. a, a tweet. But but <laughs> no, the, no, equi- no. the equivalent of that back then is is what what happened. Yes, it was, it was spreading as fast as it could. Yes, yes, and. Uh, you know, we went out there with, to dinner with friends that night, and we eventually told them what was going on. I think I was on with John Hancock that night. Hancock had me on. I think we were driving uptown. I'm on the phone. And there was just a lot of disbelief that it happened. And the, the, like, like I said, the two things I'll remember most, one, the media, how, I was on the front page of the sports section of the Charlotte Observer, I'm laying in bed on Saturday morning moping. I got the TV on, and my name's on a crawl across the bottom of, I forgot what station I had on, Bill Rosinski fired by the Carolina Panthers. And then that's pretty much what the newspaper article, uh, the headline said. So there's this, you know, here I am making headlines for all the wrong reasons as far as my career was concerned. But the other thing that I'll always remember is the response of the Panther fans other members of the media, uh, my fellow broadcasters in uh, from around the league, people I'd worked with who were all just couldn't believe that you know they would they would let me go, and I would explain it to them. I said, I, you know, this is the deal. I think I I think I upset the owner. I think they thought I was making too much money. So instead of dealing with any of it, they just got rid of me. I think they were shocked at the response of PSL owners and the fans. And I'm going, well, that's kind of cool that they're upset about it. And to this day, I mean, here we are. That was, uh, it was I think it was January 5th, 2005, a day that will, to me, live in infamy. Now, I know that we're going to talk about things that you did after that, because that's not the end of the story. Obviously, that was, what, 15 years ago? I mean, I lost count yeah, now. Yeah, it is now 15. So that's hard to believe in of itself. But uh, now that you do have context, before we've talked about some of those other things, Favorite play-by-play job you ever had? I mean, was that your favorite uh, favorite run as a broadcaster? Yeah, because it was. I was watching a team from its birth, and that's unique. 
I joined the Atlanta Falcons. I was there for three years. I really enjoyed working for the Falcons. They were great. Uh, and I and they gave me access, front office people, coaches. I could walk around and talk to anybody. Uh, that was cool. But to be part of something from the start, to see the first practices, to the first, you know, the Hall of Fame game in Canton, to, to go through, go into the NFC Championship game in just the second year, to watch those players come out of the stadium after beating Dallas that first time in the playoffs that year, to have the city embrace this team like it did, and then to go through all the <laughs> the lousy stuff that happened, and then to go to the Super Bowl and be a part of that. Sure, it's it's n- nothing could take its place. Well, and knowing you like I do, I, I'm sure that uh, it, it makes it that much better that after all these years, even. You and I are talking right now in uh, in the year 2020 on the doorstep of 2021, and uh, you probably can't go a week, or I don't know, maybe maybe less than that, where you're not out somewhere and somebody says, "Hey, Bill, loved you when you were with the Panthers." You know, time has marched on, but when you're a play-by-play guy and you call seminal moments like that, only one guy can call the first play of the team's existence. You can't do that twice. So the fact that oh. you were that guy and were a part of so many milestones, uh, you, you still hear from people to this day. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was flying to an NFL game last weekend. I'm on the plane. Guy gets on the plane, walks by me, stops. Bill Rosinski. <laughs> I go, yes, sir. And I've got a mask on. You know, I don't know how people can recognize people. Bill Rosinski, you were still the best. Still the best. And he turned and walked. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you say, damn right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here's an interesting part of this whole story. Now, uh, I guess the next thing for me to ask would be, okay, Bill, what happened next? <laughs> I know exactly what happened next because, okay, so Bill uh, leaves the Panthers. We've just talked about how that happened, and uh, you're trying to figure out what's next. I was here at WBT in 2005. I'd been here as a full-time employee since you started with Al in 1997, so what, about eight years or so? And I'm thinking, I'm a guy working behind the scenes, and I'm thinking, okay, what am I going to do next? Because I need to somehow break out of the logjam I'm in and move up somewhere, Mm -hmm. and uh, there didn't seem to be a path. I was talking to uh, Danny Fontana, the late Danny Fontana, who many of you listening I'm sure would remember. Uh, Danny, actually, I, I assume you met Danny when you were part of Al's yep. morning mm-hmm. show. Okay, exactly. so there was a, a run there in 1997 where Al and Bill and Danny and I was a producer and we had some more people. Uh, Lauren Fox was part of that show and John Stokes did the news. But anyway, um, I was in touch with Danny as well. Danny had left this station and Danny was trying to uh, start a his own broadcast company. And Danny was also a a financial advisor who worked at a place called Triune Capital Advisors in in Uptown, and he had a brokerage firm that he built out in the bottom floor of the Plaza Building. Now I think it's a it's a bar, but at that point in time <laughs> it was right. it was it was Danny's financial empire, and he had this wild hair that I'm gonna I want to build a studio in the front room, right in the uh, you know in the glass entrance to the Plaza Building, uh, kind of like a. a, a I guess Charlotte's version of like the Today Show set, right? And so Danny's idea was, I want to get this thing off the ground. How can I do that? I was talking to Danny at the time, and uh, Danny had heard about what happened with you, and uh, he had this idea that I wonder if we could get Bill to do a radio show. 
So Danny had been talking to me about coming over and maybe working for him. And I got to be honest with you, uh, before your name was ever mentioned, I didn't see how that was going to be viable. I love Danny. And uh, one of the, Danny's long legacies is Danny. Danny's a guy who would go for it. Some people would say, I want to try, you know, talk. Right. Danny would give it a shot. And Danny could raise money like nobody's business. <laughs> so then all of a sudden I heard that he was interested in talking to you. So I got on the message boards back in the day because we didn't have Twitter and social media. <laughs> but uh, on one of the broadcast message boards, everybody was wondering, where's Bill going to go mm. next? What would be the open broadcast job? One of the broadcast jobs that was open at the time looked to be the Miami Dolphins. Okay, and I don't think I've ever talked to you about this. You, I'm sure, knew about it, but I never have said that this was going on in my head. But so I'm watching this all happen down there, and there was a guy who's now pretty established with ESPN and ESPN Radio named uh, John Shambi, Boog Shambi. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a speculation that this Miami Dolphins job was open and that uh, Shambi was one of the guys that was in the mix, and <laughs> your name was mentioned and other names were mentioned. And I'm thinking, well, if Bill wants this job or if Bill goes after this, I know how this is probably going to end because, uh, as I said earlier in this interview, I mean, you and still are uh, renowned around the NFL. And I think I think this is my opinion, but I, I think a lot of people would agree with it. If you had gone after certain jobs over the years that have been open and been willing to move and uproot, you probably could have gotten those jobs based on your track record. You should have. And so I'm thinking, well, if Bill gets this, he's going to take it. And uh, then I don't know how this Danny thing is going to work out because I just don't see I just it, they need something to launch this on. Right. So anyway, obviously, the Miami thing didn't end up happening. Uh, I don't know all the details of that. I just know I remember I would check the message board in Miami every day saying, what's going on with this Boog Shambi guy? Is he going to get it or is it going to be Rosinski or what's going to happen? And then little did I know you had a conversation with Fontana and uh, long story short, Danny convince you to come over to his operation and syndicate a sports show. Mm -hmm. And then they reached out to me and said, we need somebody who can produce this. We need somebody who can be kind of the radio guy behind these things. And they were also trying to start a radio. Danny had this idea, I'm going to buy a a station in Kings Mountain and try to increase the power. They needed radio people. You and I both know that. They had a lot Mm -hmm. of people over there. Um, And so long story short, they hire Bill. When they hired Bill, that's when I left WBT because I said, all right, there's something I can sink my teeth into. I can go and see how that could viably work if you get a Bill Rosinski, a name, and somebody who's got huge notoriety in this town and, and a huge following, and people want to hear where he's going to turn up next. So they hired me. They hired you. They hired a guy named Chris Stowe, who was mm-hmm. our producer at the time, and a few other people along the way. But that became the next chapter of the Bill Rosinski story and <laughs> the Bo Thompson story, too. Because <laughs> right. all of a sudden, you and I, in the summer of 2005, found ourselves in this... I mean, it was a nice studio that was built, too. Ron Tollison built it. It was very... Everything about the operation was first class. Now, um, the money that was spent on the front end probably hurt things in the back end, but that that's also not really for this podcast. But there we were in the summer of 2005, starting the Bill Rosinski Show, and I have... <laughs> Something I've as we wind this thing down, I have some audio I want to play uh, and get Bill's reaction to. And this is, as I hit the volume button, this is the first one. All you ever ask for is an opportunity. You got it today. Where else would you rather be than right here, right now? I know I wouldn't have it any other way. Whatever he hits, he destroys. Round up the usual suspects. 
The Karis Radio Network presents The Bill Rosinski Show. Hey, now when you walk into the ring, you'll be ready. The Carolina's most respected voice. You'll be able to spit nails, kid. Let's play hard. Let's play smart. Use your head. Sports fans' most anticipated show. Took the restrictor plate off. Give the Red Dragon a little more juice. He continues to play this tournament without an ounce of fear. Contact The Bill Rosinski Show at 704-570-9610 in the Charlotte area or nationwide at 866-570-9610, toll-free. Now, here's Bill Rosinski. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. Glad you're with us. We are uh, coming your way from the plush Karis Radio Network Studios, 4th and College Streets in Uptown Charlotte. Uh, of course, I'm Bill Rosinski, along with Bo Thompson, the associate executive producer. Glad you're with us on the Karis Radio Network. We come your way on our flagship station in Charlotte, WFNZ Sports Radio 610. In Lenore Hickory, WKGX 1080 The Game. Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, WDNC 620 AM The Bull. And ESPN 1400 AM in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Email Bill at BillRosinskiShow.com. And we, of course, are at the Karis Radio Network Studios, 4th and College in Uptown Charlotte. <laughs> what do you think of when you hear that? Well, I think of what what uh, what was and what could have been. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned Danny. I was in a s- Staples. Danny was walking in. I was coming out, and he goes, "You need to do." I go, "Hey, Danny, how you doing?" He goes, "You need to do talk radio." I go, "Okay." So he, he had me out. He took Jane and I out to dinner with Mary and his wife, and we're at uh, uh, Macintosh's uh, Steakhouse. Yeah. All right, and uh, Greg McIntosh is uh, uh, he was one of the great restaurateurs in Charlotte uh, for a long time, and that's when he made made the pitch about doing a sports talk show. And I wasn't sure I wanted to do it. I wanted to pursue other play by play opportunities. You're right, the Dolphins thing never really materialized for me. Didn't pursue it that much. And there was there might have been one other job out there, but a friend of mine ended up getting the job. It was the Detroit Lions. And uh, Dan Miller, because I was talking to Dan, he goes, look, the Lions job is opening up, but I want it, so don't you apply for it. (laughs) And that's what I was getting at a few (laughs) minutes ago when I said that you didn't pursue some of them. Because if you had, I think they would have had traction. It's just that, uh, you know, for various reasons you didn't. But uh, anyway. So we did the show. I, You know, you and I, of course, had worked together, and Chris Stowe came in as a producer. Chris now a fireman, by the way. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it, it started out well. We did some. I thought we did some really good stuff. Um, you know, we did that uh, after Sam Mills passed away. We did that salute to Sam, which I still have in my archives, and I think is one of the great. We don't. That's not done enough, I think, in local radio anymore. The production value, uh, because of your skills, and how we dealt with the local teams. This past April, April 18th to be exact, the Carolina Panthers and their fans lost a hero. Sam Mills passed away after a nearly two-year battle with intestinal cancer. It was a courageous fight from a man called some 20 years before too small to play in the NFL. There was nothing small about Sam Mills, especially his heart and his desire to prove the naysayers wrong. Sam made it to the NFL in 1986, playing for the Saints. But for most of us, it was his role as leader of the Panthers' defense in the first three years of the franchise that we remember vividly. Sam made some big plays from his linebacker position. In 1995, after the expansion team lost its first five games, Mills stepped in front of a Bubby Brister shovel pass that sparked the Panthers to their first regular season win at home against the Jets. Brister, 
Oh, shovel pass. And oh. intercepted. Mills with the interception. He could go. He's at the 15, 10, 5. Mills has a touchdown. Oh. When I see that play now today, I go, wow, you're talking about being in the right place at the right time and, and things just happening. It, it happened that way for me. It was just a matter of a good call made by a defensive coordinator to put me in the right place at the right time, and I just took advantage of it. And as a team, we took advantage of it and went on for our first win. The Panthers would win four in a row and seven that first season. It was a year Sam would remember fondly. The team trained at Winthrop in Rock Hill and would bust to home games at Clemson. At the time when you do it, you know, you don't really care to have to drive that far away for a game, but I think it was something to help our team grow. It was something to help us bond together as one big unit. And uh, when I look back on it now, it was, it was a great learning experience. I, I, I really did enjoy it uh, in the long haul because we learned a lot about each other. Sam and the Panthers built off that first season and put together a magical 1996 run to the NFC Championship game. On January 5th, 1997, Carolina hosted Dallas in the club's first playoff game. It was late in the fourth quarter when Mills again stepped up to seal a 26-17 victory. Quick count by Aikman, back to pass from his own seven. Puts it up down the middle of the field, intercepted by Sam Mills. He was going to take a knee and keeps going to the 10. Mills to the five, still going towards the end zone. Oh, he got to the one. He got to the one yard line. <laughs> Sam Mills with the icing on the cake oh. with 108 to go. We're going to Green Bay. We're going to the frozen tundra. It was a special moment for Mills, who had never won a playoff game before. And you could hear the emotion in his voice in the post-game locker room. I can't tell you how good I feel about this win. Uh, when I got up this morning, I thought about it, you know, and I said, uh, never won a game. And Man, it's, it's touching. It really is. During training camp last year, Sam told me that interception was still a topic of conversation. To win in the playoffs, that's, that's just such a great feeling. We've gone there a few times when I was with the uh, New Orleans Saints. Uh, fact that that play we were talking about uh, Mike Minner and I were just talking about that play just yesterday and he was laughing about the way I ran the football and I told him I said hey I just cradled the ball hoping that somebody would go ahead and tackle me and get it over with and, uh, and as it turned out I made it down to the two-yard line. The Panthers lost to Green Bay in the NFC Championship game but Mills picked off a Brett Favre pass in the first quarter that set up a touchdown. He played one more season before retiring after spending some time working in the front office for the Panthers, Sam decided he'd like to coach. He would put in the same passion that he did as a player. True, the money wasn't as good, the hours were longer, but he said the joy came in being a teacher. You spend so much time with the coaches. I mean, you spend more time with the coaches than you do anybody else in life, and uh, you got to enjoy doing it. And it's one of those things that really grows on you. I think the teaching profession in itself grows on you, just like uh, teachers in general. Uh, a lot of them don't make a lot of money, but they, they, they seem to grow to love what they do, and it's hard to get away from it when you grow to love it. It was during training camp two years ago that Mills learned he had cancer. Amazingly, despite the grueling chemotherapy treatments he would have to endure, he continued to coach and never missed a game. He was part of the team's NFC Championship season in 2002 and the trip to the Super Bowl. Mills coached again last season, continued his chemo, and fought the good fight against a disease that would finally take him from us on April 18th, 2005. There's a statue of Mills outside the stadium that was erected after his induction into the team's Hall of Honor in 1998. Owner Jerry Richardson said at the time it was fitting to recognize a man who set a high standard for our players on and off the field.
Last July, I asked Sam about the statue. That's really something special, and uh, you know, I ride by sometimes and look at it, and I go, "Wow, this is this is unbelievable." Because as a as a youngster, you always have a dream of playing in the NFL one day, but never, uh, never had it ever crossed my mind that I can ever have a statue outside of a stadium. I never even thought about that. Sam Mills is gone, but the memories will always be there. If Jerry Richardson had 53 Sam Mills on his roster, he would sleep easy every night. But there was only one Sam, player, coach, teammate, husband, father, and friend. And for a decade here in the Carolinas, we had a chance to, in some way, share a part of his life. I, for one, was honored. I thought, you know, we got off to a great start, and I think it could have been a success, but the, and this is my own opinion, they made two mistakes. One, Danny was going after his local radio station. Mm-hmm. He wanted that. And before he even had the station and the tower, he hired, <laughs> hired a morning team, <laughs> paying them. You know, nobody's listening. And then the other problem was we had to be on a local, so we were networked. Yep. And we wanted to be on a local station. And sadly enough, they pretty much gave it away to WFNZ. FNZ was happy to carry the show from 10 to noon. Right. So here we are out. The quote-unquote salespeople he had were not the best. But here they're trying to sell my show to advertisers for a high rate. And you had FNZ out selling, well, we'll give you prime time with the Pac-Man, Rosensky, blah, blah, going down the line for this rate. Well, what, what advertiser is going to pay this much yeah. when he can, you know, so I knew things weren't going well sales-wise because I listened to the show. It's in my ears. <laughs> so eventually it, it, it went by the wayside. And uh, I, I was sad about that. But as John Fox would say, it is what it is. And, you know, you and I can discuss why things went south for a number of reasons. But it did. Did a few years. I thought we did some really good stuff. And, uh, you know, I went on to just doing play-by-play. Well, and uh, all of us, uh, eventually, that, that, that whole operation, uh, your show and then the, the radio station, and then I got pulled in the direction of programming the radio station, and it was a, a situation where you had a lot of people pulled in a lot of uh, directions. But I, I'll say this. Uh, I can look back now. Now, I remember when, when everything shut down, just as you were, I was trying to figure out, what am I going to do now? Uh, but I'll never regret uh, going over there for a few years uh, in the beginning, uh, the reason I went was to work with you and working with you for three years there. I, I don't regret a single bit of that because, you know, you're you're a pro's pro. And um, I thought for the time that we were together, we like you say, we, we uh, produce some good radio and, and things I'm still proud of. So, yeah, and I also think, you know, there was this faction of the Fontana organization that wanted did not want me any part of the new local station that he had and i always thought why wouldn't you want me on your station then you can control all the advertising et cetera, et cetera. but there were people who did not want me on there so just well you were the you were the biggest voice that the organization had and the selling point in my eyes always what now i will tell you this <laughs> I've, I've said this to people before i think i've told zoki this story before but uh the biggest selling point of that entire organization, uh, radio station and show, was this is the one place in town that you can go and hear what Bill thinks about the Carolina <laughs> Panthers. Uh, you can't hear Bill anywhere else. You used to be able to hear him calling the games, and while that's not the case anymore, you would uh, your show would be the one place where you could go and hear what Bill thought about what was still going on. The, you know, the 
NFL team obviously continued on and had a life of its own. But we used to start the show, and, and uh, I remember I was working with you, and, and you would start on your Panthers monologue on Mondays. And I thought to myself, okay, you know, we got this big, powerful open. Here's Bill. You know, nobody else in town has this. And then... <laughs> The phone would ring sometimes, and there was this guy named Ned who <laughs> right. wanted to talk about the checkers. <laughs> now, nothing against Ned. I appreciate him being a fan of the show, but I remember thinking, we can't stop in the middle of Bill's Panther monologue and talk about the checkers. <laughs> no, hockey's great, and I know you love hockey, yes. but I remember going, no, Ned cannot call now. No, he can call later, but he can't call now. But uh, the Sam Mills piece that you mentioned, uh, we had some fun. Uh, uh, used to have on uh, Lynn Pascarelli, and we'd, we'd have oh, yeah. on. Uh, Remember Ron Meyer? Ron Meyer. And Bill, as I told my, my wife the other day, I'm like, not really this tall. I'm just sitting on my wallet. <laughs> <laughs> this is a special edition of the Bill Rosinski Show. It is hard. It is a bitch more to win up there, Bill. Let me just put it that way. Celebrating our one-year anniversary on the Karis Radio Network. Hey, Big Bill. This is Ron Meyer in Dallas, Texas. I want to add my congratulations to you for completing your first year and how successful that was. Everyone in uh, in the Mid-South just loves talking to you and listening to you. So uh, great show, Bill. Keep up the good work and look forward to being with you again this fall. Have a good one. Let Pascarelli with us from ESPN.com. Who do you like? I, I like the Panthers. Now, people will say, well, you picked the Falcons to win the NFC Championship on your site. Yeah, I did. Eh, but you know me, Bill. I did that to tweet the Falcons a little bit, too. <laughs> Everyone's favorite player, Terrell Owens. Oh, God. What do you anticipate happening here and the ramifications from the decision? What Block can't do, Bill, is put a gun to the head of Andy Reid and say, you've got to play this guy. Mm -hmm. And trust me, unless the people in Philadelphia are flat out lying to me, they ain't playing him. We could see him become kind of persona non grata for the rest of the year, and then they'll cut him and he'll sign with some schmuck team next year that <laughs> is, is crazy enough to take the guy on, you know? So how did you spend your two weeks during the Olympics? Got a little golf in, got a little uh, touring of television and movie studios, uh, hey. you know, the obligatory uh, activities with your wife, and uh, we had a very good time. <laughs> Not with my wife, your wife. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the boss, the general manager, yeah. Ah, there you go. Uh, <laughs> the highlight of the week for me during football season many times was that, you know, the Pick'em segment. We had Ron Meyer on, and then we would go into, you put this great production piece together. And we would make picks with you, me, Chris, and I think we brought in. There was like a sales girl, a person we brought in. She would she would make picks, <laughs> and then we'd compare. And and then Casey was always at the bottom of the uh, <laughs> Casey Shannon, Casey Danny's son, and he was always in last place. And it was I was always crying on Friday afternoons because. Uh, you know, we would end the week with that during football season, which was always really a, a hoot. Well, uh, so that was a, a three-year stretch, a short stretch, but uh, an interesting one. Uh, it sent me off in a different direction, uh, the direction I am now, which is behind a microphone. So, I'll again, from that standpoint, too, little did I know what I was preparing myself for, but working with you uh, only, uh, I've worked with a lot of people during my career, but I say every step of the way, you take a little bit from who you're working with and learn some things, and I certainly 
certainly did from you. So I'll always benefit from that. Uh, during that time, though, uh, your son Bobby came into the mix and mm-hmm. and did his first uh, stint into radio. And Bobby is now uh, successfully working in sports radio in town, doing play by play. And I've seen him on ESPN and following da- in Dad's footsteps. <laughs> but the very first uh, chance for him to do anything was was at that uh, station we had there. So so there's another thing that started yeah. during those three years. Yeah, I'd actually forgotten about that because I think it, he was there, but then I was out. He was still there. And, uh, yeah, you know, I think back to that show. I remember we used to have this kid, Claudio, who would get Panther. <laughs> yes. Panther. It was audio from Claudio yes. on Monday mornings. And we'd, we'd drill him about what was going on in the locker room after the game. <laughs> remember we had Ben? There was Who, who was yeah. the it, it, uh, bussing Ben, we called him, because he had, always bust his way to – he was like a, an intern – and we would send him to games, <laughs> and now yeah. and now he has like three kids. And then <laughs> right? I, I'm friends with him on on Facebook, and so we had yeah we had Ben, and I had forgotten about Claudio. And Claudio <laughs> the funniest thing about Claudio was I don't know if he was an exchange student or what, but I think he he uh, he was born overseas, mm-hmm. and Claudio had no filter. Like we would send him into the Panthers locker room, and he would ask anybody anything. He, you know, it, it didn't matter if you walked up to Keyshawn Johnson. <laughs> just, I mean, there there was nothing uh, that he wouldn't ask. So gosh, yeah. I, I'd forgotten about Claudio. So uh, Bobby got his start there. I remember one time uh, we had we sent Bobby down on the the small station. Uh, it was WDYT is what we called it, and it was uh, uh, his tower was in Kings Mountain. Bobby went down and did some play by play for Kings Mountain football. Mm-hmm. And I remember Bobby brought me the tape of his calls in one of the first games, and I I put it in the player, the CD player for you <laughs> kids. And I remember turning it on, going, "Oh my God." That's Bill. <laughs> Listen to the cadence of his calls. It's and you could hear it. I mean, a chip off the old block. And so uh, Bobby got started there. And uh, I should also say this: the next stage for you included college football, some some NFL, some college basketball. It also became golf, mm-hmm. a big part of what you're doing now. And uh, that's one more place where you and me <laughs> intertwined with that golf thing, because you and I both know right. how that started. Yeah, you know, I uh, we can. So the station ends. I'm done with the radio station. At at that point in my career, I was doing some play by play for ISP while I was still working at the radio station. Right. So I was doing some college football and college basketball, ACC stuff. Then after the station let me go, I went back to Westwood One in 2006. So six, seven, and eight, I worked with Dan Reeves on NFL games. They eventually used me for some college basketball. I did some college football, did the NCAA basketball tournament. So that was great. And then in 2009, two things happened. I left Westwood to go to ESPN Radio, and I got a call from a guy who became my agent. He said, how'd you like to work for PGA Tour Radio? And I knew it existed. And I said, well, how do I do this? And he said, well, I, and, and it turns out I knew the guy who was running the operation. I had worked with him back at the old mutual days back in the 80s. So I had that in. And the guy says, look, I need, I need some play-by-play. And I'm thinking to myself, well, who does golf play-by-play? <laughs> you know, you could do, I could do high school, football, basketball, Division three college, on your way up. Who does golf? Who does golf play-by-play? So I basically decided to make stuff up. I had a recorder. I was living uptown at the time, walked out on my balcony just to get some outside noise, and I just called shots from the year Anthony Kim won the Wells Fargo Championship. Mm-hmm. A couple iron shots, a drive off the tee, putts, he wins it, blah, blah, blah. 
I listen to it, and I'm going, you know, this is okay, but I need something more. I go, Who should I call? <laughs> Bo Thompson. So I called you, and I told you what I needed. Golf claps, maybe ball whack, birds chirping, whatever you wanted to do. And I gave you the demo of me, and then you put it together. And long story short, they sent it to the tour. The tour loved it. In fact, the guy that I knew who was going to hire me called me back, and he said, when were you at the Wells Fargo Championship? <laughs> I didn't have the heart to tell him that I had made all this stuff up, but that was 2009, and uh, in 2000. 21, it'll be my, what, 12th year? Well, let me hit the button right here. Well, the beginning of the green mile for Anthony Kim. That's what they call the final three holes here at Quail Hollow. Here on the par 416th, the 480-yarder, Kim split the fairway with a beautiful tee shot. Then he had a 7-iron just over the left bunker, bounced down to the green, and he's about 10 feet away right now as he lines up for this birdie putt. A little downhill, left to right break. And now he strokes the ball. This has a good chance of going in, and he's got it. Ring it up. Another birdie for Anthony Kim. He is now 14 under par and leads Ben Curtis by three as they go to 17. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, and I remember when you called me and you told me about this, and I thought, if anybody should be calling golf, it should be Bill Rosinski. We should be able to do this. And, uh, and, and, and lo and behold, all these years later, uh, you are now uh, working how many years for PGA Radio now? Well, 2009 was my first, so we're getting to 2021. You can do the math, 12, 12 years. Phil, a uh, couple of bogeys to start, but seven birdies after that great save at 18. Your thoughts on how it went today? It was, uh, it was an up-and-down round. I didn't feel great the first four or five holes and was um, just kind of fighting to hang in there. And then all of a sudden it kind of clicked, and... and uh, I, I just felt better with my game and uh, made a few adjustments and, and made some birdies there, the front nine. I thought anything under par today was going to be a good round, but um, I probably let a few few go out there. And yet another, I guess maybe top five here at Quail Hollow again. You just you love the place. You're just you're due, you're due. Yes, I do. I do love the place. I think it's uh, some of the best crowds we play in front of. Some of the largest. Some of the, the the most fun to play in front of. Let's go out to the 17th. Bill Rosinski is there. The second coming for Lee Westwood. And Bill, I think it's safe to say Lee Westwood knows what he has to do. It looks like he's got driver off the deck in his hand. He does. 255 to the front and another 18 paces to the hole. Hey, Gene Saracen did it at the Masters. Let's see if Lee Westwood, well, the follow through doesn't like it. Let's see if this even reaches the green. And no, it's in the heather to the right. I think Lee Westwood knows, uh, I think he knew when he left 16 that this tournament had been lost. Not his day today, just made one birdie and lefty. He's gonna hoist up the Claret Jug. Let's go to Bill Rosinski. Jason Dave just short of the green, knocks it home! Knocks it in! What a bogey by Jason Day! Put it in the water in his second shot, almost put it in. My goodness, hung on the left edge of the creek and then chips it home. And the kudos to the fans who still remained around this golf course and now around this 18th green after the big storm that blew through here. Nine feet, four inches for par here at 18 for Max Homa. Putter blade makes contact, making its way to the cup. He buried it and a big yell. Max Homa has won the 2019 Wells Fargo Championship. His first victory on the PGA Tour. It comes with 500 FedEx Cup points. That moves him to 35th in the standings. A final round, four under par, 67 under tough conditions. 
Big hug with his caddy, Joe Griner. Max Homa, a life-changing victory in Charlotte, a winner on the PGA Tour. Of course, uh, Bill Rosinski calling a football game is, is, is what you were born to do. But, <laughs> but then I listen to you uh, doing the golf, and I listen a lot. A lot of times on my morning show on WBT, I'll, I'll play uh, clips of the tournaments when we have you on uh, as a guest. And I think to myself, boy, he was born to do that too. So, <laughs> so, so I have to ask you, uh, which one do you like better? Well, I've done so much football, and it was to work for two NFL teams and to call the Super Bowl. That's still the coolest thing for me. If I was putting down my resume, that would be number one. But golf has taken me to a number of U.S. Opens. It took me to the British Open. And the way all things played out with golf it was really interesting because and, – and ESPN, when I, when I started I – I started with doing golf in 2009 before ESPN hired me. So – I said, "Look, I can I still do golf?" And when I signed my contract with ESPN, they said, "Yeah, yeah, sure. Don't you know? Don't worry about it. You can still do golf." So um, I had the best of both worlds for ten years with ESPN and doing golf. But ESPN eventually—this is maybe the next year—I remember my boss at ESPN calling me on the phone because I was working a tournament in Florida. He says, "Guess what?" I said, "What?" We just got the radio rights to the U.S. Open golf tournament. <laughs> he goes, "I don't know what we're going to do. We've never done golf." I said, "I got you covered." Uh, they eventually got the rights to the British Open. So uh, did six, I think six British Opens, five U.S. Opens for them. And then to go to a PGA Championships, and uh, it's just been an incredible run. Well, when I asked you which one is your favorite to call, I, I already knew the answer before, <laughs> I, before I asked you. But I do have to say, when I've heard some of these calls at the major championships, and I, you know, I, I hear you walking down the 18th fairway, and I do have to think to myself, that, that, you know, this is a pretty sweet deal. I mean, calling football for NFL teams is, is great, and Bill's great at it. But knowing you, uh, as I've gotten to know you over the years, you know, the gig of going and, and, and trailing these uh, incredible golfers you know, if you can't play, that's that's the thing you want to be doing is walking behind the guys who uh, who are, are winning the titles. And so the the sheer uh, places that 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 job takes you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know Jane, uh, because I see the pictures on social media, she she is right there with you. She is, she is credentialed by the PGA Tour. She's yeah. not compensated by the PGA Tour, <laughs> but she is credentialed by the tour to be with me and she drives it because we have carts that we use to get around uh, ahead of crowds so it hasn't been a, an issue uh, since we came back from all the COVID stuff but uh, yeah she's been with me and she's my statistician for has been for football that of course has gone by the wayside too with COVID we have mm-hmm. a minimum amount of people we can keep in a booth so it's been I would say if did the Panthers letting me go it was not devastating in fact my career has been better I've done a lot more things than I probably would have done had I remained the voice of the Carolina Panthers. I sometimes think back to, hey, this would be 25 years yeah, being the voice of a team. That would have been cool. But God had a different plan. And to be able to travel with my wife, and my sons have spotted for me on NFL games. So to have the whole Rosinski crew in a broadcast booth doing college football, NFL, uh, not a lot of people have had that happen in their lives. Well, and and uh, like I alluded to earlier, if you had gone after some of these NFL jobs full bore, want, wanting it to uh, work out the way uh, you wanted it to, you might have gotten those. But I, I think, am I right saying that 
you know, Charlotte became a place that you weren't ready to leave. Even though the Panthers job ended, you had your kids here. Uh, they were starting to get, uh, you know, grow roots here. I know, I know that Greg is in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Is he still there? Yeah, still there. But, um, but one of the reasons why you didn't immediately go to the next NFL team that had an opening was because you didn't necessarily want to leave Charlotte, North Carolina. True. Uh, now, there were times early on when they let me go, January, February, March, into April. This this radio show we're talking about with Danny didn't come. We didn't start till July. Right. right. So there was, and there, you know, like I said, there a couple of opportunities had popped up that I really didn't pursue. But there were times just because of kind of the pain I was going through yeah. uh, that I did want to get out. Let's go somewhere else. And Jane didn't want to go, so thank goodness that she, you know. So maybe kept, I should say, after all these years, you're glad you didn't. Yeah, I mean, we still love Charlotte's gone through some tough times. We live uptown, and this has been a tough year in uptown Charlotte because of COVID. Uh, you know, the, the demonstrations and the businesses that had to be boarded up, and small businesses closing down left and right. I, I walk through uptown Charlotte now, and I just shake my head because it's good. it's going to take a while. Really, going to take some time for the city to recover from what's going on you know hopefully the you know we've got this virus where we can get you know uh, a shot uh to, to get people back to work when, when your city is when your two biggest employers are the two banks in uptown and no one's coming into work that pretty much sums up what uptown charlotte is like but big picture bobby's here i have a grandson here his family's here Greg's four hours away. Jump mm-hmm. down 85 and, and see him. Uh, I'm trying to talk the missus into getting a second place, maybe at one of these over 55 golf course communities <laughs> where we can uh, spend some time. But I think, I think big picture, Charlotte will be our home for the rest of the lives that we have. One of the things that you uh, alluded to earlier in the podcast was uh, what Charlotte Uptown looked like when you were interviewing for the Panthers job (laughs) and what a wild, wild west of a ghost town it was. And now, all these years later, did you ever think you'd live in Uptown Charlotte someday? We, you know, and, and let me stipulate there that where you live didn't exist, <laughs> where you live now didn't exist back in the day when oh, you no, first no, toured uptown. No, in fact, I think the condo we're in right now was built in '97, '98, something like that, by Bank of America. I think they were part of the uh, construction of it. Jane and I always had this desire that once the kids grew up, we would probably do a condo type thing. We didn't think we'd be in Charlotte. I would always, when I would visit New York, I would look up at the skyscrapers and go, how cool would it be to live here? But uh, that was that's uh, way too expensive anyway. So, well, I know when, when Bobby graduated from App State, Greg was already in Atlanta. We told Bobby, we said, look, next year we're selling the house. So you better you better find a place to live. Start planning. That's right. So I ended up getting married. So, But that, that that's worked out great for him. So, yeah, we live in a condo in Uptown Charlotte. And pre-pandemic, to be able to walk to... The stadium for football, the arena for basketball, the Blumenthal for music, to uh, hundreds of restaurants. Uh, it, it's it was great, and we live in Fourth Ward, so you've got that trees and a park, and you've got that uh, suburban look to that part of town. Where if you turn to your left when I stare out my balcony, then the, there's all the big buildings. We talked about uh, the Fontana years. We talked about the golf that still goes on now. We should also mention that uh, you can still hear Bill Rosinski calling football uh, on most weekends and uh, sometimes some basketball in there. 
Yeah, and you know, I spent 10 years with ESPN Radio and didn't want to leave, but it was one of these deals again in broadcasting where the guy that hired me retired. He's just a year older than I am. And the new guy that took over, although I knew him and I thought he liked my work, he was, uh, you know, when my contract was up in uh, the summer of 2019, I thought he was calling me to negotiate a new deal. Instead, he was telling me that, uh, hey, moving in a different direction again. (laughs) But fortunately, I've made enough. I know enough people in the business, having been in it for 45 years, that one of my producers at Westwood One, when I was working with Dan Reeves, helped start Compass Media Network. Compass Media does NFL. They do college football. They do college basketball. And I contacted her, and my agent did. And I started doing some games with them. So it was piecemeal last year. But now this year I've got pretty much a full slate of uh, college and NFL games. I did the Bucks and the uh, Saints to start the season down in New Orleans. I did Tampa and the Chiefs. Uh, and they're meeting down in Florida. Uh, I've been to Norman, Oklahoma. I've been to uh, a couple other college towns. I've done an NC State game. So, yeah, I'm out there between still doing it. Pays a little less. ESPN paid a little bit more. But I'm just happy to be working. I'm at the point in my life where I still think I've got my A game. I and I, I love what I do. I get I get to travel. I get to go to sporting events. And I get paid for it. And I get to go to golf tournaments. And I have my wife traveling with me. And every once in a while, my sons work with us. So uh, bottom line, from, from January 5th to 2005, there was that rough patch for four or five months. And then the radio show with Danny and working with you. And through that whole time, it's been, it's been great. So you mentioned earlier uh, when you were a kid, there were a few names, broadcasters, that really uh, inspired you to a degree. One was Van Miller for the Buffalo Bills, and the other one was Kurt Gowdy. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, uh, and, and you said also at that time that uh, you never really emulated or tried to emulate any one person. You were your own guy, and I completely agree with that. That's what I love about you, and I think so many people do, is that there's only one Bill Rosinski. But uh, there have to be some broadcasters in the modern era right now that you like. Are ones are, are there colleagues, so to speak, that uh, are out there right now that you really respect their work? Yeah, well, there's a couple at ESPN because uh, Bob Wischusen is a guy who he's the voice of the New York Jets. Third down and 10 at the Jet 46-yard line, 13 seconds to go. The Raiders have to have a touchdown. They are out of timeouts. Carr takes the snap. Here comes an all-out blitz. Steps up in the pocket. Unloads one down the left sideline. Looking for Reds. Drops it in. Touchdown. Are you kidding me? But he's also ESPN, one of ESPN's college football guys. In fact, they have a couple of uh, Dave Pash is another one. Dave gets stuck working with Bill Walton all the <laughs> time on basketball. We have a break in the action. People can see that you're actually playing the glockenspiel. This is called the glockenspiel, okay? Made famous. The German name. You broke it. No, I didn't break it. It comes apart like that. That's how you transport it. So you can, please, don't you know anything about glockenspiels? Can we stop interviewing the glockenspiel guy and focus on the game, please? They're Wait, making a run here. You There's called a it a blowout 20 minutes ago. Small gets a second free throw. Can I take this with me? <laughs> don't say yes. <laughs> Their ability to, to move from doing radio play-by-play to TV play-by-play and to do it smoothly and seamlessly is uh, something I've always admired because people don't realize there's a lot of guys doing television have no clue how to call a radio game. 
Uh, but these guys do it. And as far as, I'm trying to think, you know, Kevin Harlan's really good. 52-yard field goal try. Farhash, it's an end-over-end kick through the dank autumn air. It is caught! Carolina wins! They remain undefeated and beat the Colts in overtime 29-26. I can listen to Kevin all the time. Kenny Albert's a friend of mine. On second and eight, off the play fake, has some running room. Inside the 30, inside the 20, Vic into the end zone. Falcons win in overtime. A 46-yard touchdown run. I knew Kenny, geez, back in the early 80s when he was just Marv's kid and he was helping us out, you know, schlepping drinks and filling in, uh, you know, doing commercials as we were covering the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament in New York. So I've known Kenny for a long time. Uh, So those are some of the guys I I would say are – really good at their craft and again i don't imitate them i you know they 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 have a way of doing i know when i'm listening to his shoes in her past that's who i'm listening to well and like i said uh your voice your style is one of a kind but i'm always intrigued by people like you uh although you you are your own person i'm curious as to who else out there uh you respect and like to listen to and Mm -hmm. so that's that's part of the genesis of the question there uh this podcast as i told you at the outset is in part uh, you know, historical, chronological about the person I'm talking to, but also it's about the radio station in the city that we're in and a radio station that's coming up on 100 years in Charlotte, North Carolina. You got to Charlotte, as you said, in 1995, and you've been here doing one thing or another ever since. How has the city of Charlotte, in your eyes, evolved since you got here to where you are now? Well, the uh, uptown has changed considerably. Yeah. I, as, as I, when I came into town, uptown dried up at five o'clock, and there was not there was no reason to hang around. Uh, there still is no there still is very little retail uptown, but the the boom that took place in this city from uh, the late the early two thousands up to two thousand eight, and then things kind of went in the tank in two thousand eight when we had the banking crisis. I remember I actually got my real estate license as well here in Charlotte. Because after I left the radio station, <laughs> I still had play-by-play jobs, but we were friends with these realtors, and this woman says, Bill, get your real estate license. You come work. This is another story I'm not going to get into. But I did, and I'm lousy at math. I did get my real estate license. First time, I took classes for like three months, took the exam, and you have to fill out a HUD statement. And that includes doing all kinds of math, and I got it right. So I'm always kind of proud of that. I did buy my condo and saved 3% because I represented myself. So there, there you go. So there you go. But the city itself, you, you go to South Charlotte and the boom that's taken place there, just the spread of the suburbs. But to me, the the big thing is the city itself because it is – I know the two banks kind of dominate the employment scene, but there are – you go to South End and what's going on there and NODA – and all these areas right around the city that are just exploding. And it wasn't there 25 years ago. And my end of town is supposed to be the next. You know, you get in the Fourth Ward and First Ward there, and they've got the they got a new park. they got the 7th Street Market. There's all kinds of stuff that's supposed to be going on there. A new theater renovation, the Carolina Theater. Uh, Discovery Place is there. So I, I think, you know, we got to get through what's, what's gone on, uh, both financially and health-wise. And I think it's going to take a while for Uptown to recover, just because of all the small businesses, sadly, that have shut down. And the other thing that's changed a lot since I got here is 
Uh, you can't find many Republicans in Uptown Charlotte. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, one one fi- I guess it's appropriate that you uh, bring politics into this uh, right before we go. But uh, the last question ties into. I mean, it, my last question is a little different for you than it would be for the majority of the people that have joined me on the Century Podcast here. Uh, many of them were hosts for everyday shows. You have. Uh, you know, passed through this place and, and indirectly been involved with it uh, in many different ways, but uh, only for a short time, you know, uh, an employee of the station. And then the, when the Panthers were carried on the station, obviously, in the beginning, we talked about how WBT in the beginning was part of the broadcast uh, organization. Mm-hmm. A little bit different now, but I want to ask you this. Uh, WBT, what impact have those call letters uh, your interactions with people here, and what's the station meant to you during your time in Charlotte? Well, you know, it's, it was the flagship station of the football. The football team brought me to town, but the other people that brought me to town were Rick Jackson, the general manager of the radio station at the time, and other people involved with the Capital Radio. There was the joint uh, effort that they had of selling and putting together the Carolina Panther radio network. So they're why I'm here. They recommended me to the Panthers. I obviously had the interview with them. I think we've gone through that. But it was it was that and then WBT is ingrained in this community because when when things are happening, whether it's good or bad, whether it's bad weather, whether it's a a war, whether it's a pandemic, bad football, whether <laughs> it's bad football, <laughs> This is where people come. They don't go to the FM rocker. They don't go to the sports station. They come here because they want to hear the news. And I think they they want to hear it objectively. I I think that's what WBT has meant. And it was really important for me not only to be the voice of the Panthers in coming here, but to be part of the morning show. You know, morning radio is where it is. Afternoon drive is great. It can drive some needles. But your morning show is the one, it's the straw that stirs the drink when it comes to local radio. And to, to be involved in that part of it with WBT, with Al Gardner, with you, uh, with Danny Fontana, with John Stokes, and the other people I worked with here. It was funny, I, I had this John Hancock mug that said four to six. It was a picture, a caricature of Hancock. Four to, I kept crossing it off because he was on all these other different times. Yeah. And then I think he ended up back four to six before yeah. he, he only, retired. The only thing he hasn't done is mornings. <laughs> That's right. at, least, at least my mornings. So, he did mornings. So, uh, but I knew I got to meet Henry Bogan when, he, when, when I first started working here. And, of course, Hancock and all the other personalities that were here. So it's... Uh, it, it, it will always be a special place to me. You know, I, I got to work at WSB, the 50,000-watt blowtorch in Atlanta, and here I am at the, uh, the blowtorch in Charlotte. And how many people can say that? So as we end things here, I'm going to take you back to, I think this must have been late 1997 or 1998. We're sitting in the studio across the hall doing the morning show. Al Gardner and Danny Fontana and John Stokes and Bill Rosinski. I was behind the control board. And I don't remember how we got into this, but something hit you and made you go into this mode where all of a sudden I heard you do something I'd never heard you do before. And and, and here we go, and then I'll get your reaction. When you've got transmission woes, don't panic. Call her Bannock. Call the real transmission pros. Don't panic. Call Urbanic. 
Let urbanic transmission keep your car in top condition. <laughs> when you've got transmission woes, don't panic. Call Urbanix. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much. We get the Danny Fontana laugh in there, too. <laughs> right, so right. It's classic. That's fitting. You know, I, I think back to that, and, and it's funny because on the, the, the one great thing about the morning show with Al was I was the sports guy, but we talked about other stuff. And we were in chit-chatting about And I think I brought up my uncle, because my uncle Joe, Urbanic, and I think I started talking about how uh, my uncle had these six transmission shops. He was a great, he was a self-made businessman, didn't go to college, and in the late 50s, started his own transmission shop. Now, back in the day, transmissions in Buffalo, they were going out left and right because of the snow. Nowadays, you don't need it. You know, the it's you know the cars are made differently now. But he eventually went from one place to six, and I started talking about his commercials, and I said he had this great jingle, and that's how <laughs> that came to be. Well, look, uh, this has been fun. I knew it would be. Uh, you said earlier in the podcast that uh, Kurt Gowdy, when he called a game, you knew that it was a big deal, whatever he was calling, and that was what sort of drew you to him. And I got to say this, uh, you and I have worked together in, in different settings. When uh, I had the opportunity to, uh, out of college, work on that morning show in 1997, one of the things they told me was, I didn't know who Al was yet because he was coming from Georgia, and so I just I had not met him yet. But they said, Bill Rosinski's going to do the sports. And I said, really? <laughs> that kind of makes this a bigger deal. That, that, that gives this thing a little bit of oomph. And uh, years later, uh, this Danny Fontana uh, sports show, I knew when they got you to come aboard, that was made it a big enough deal for me to realize, okay, this is something that uh, I can jump aboard. And so uh, in much the same way that uh, Gowdy, for you, made things seem like a big deal, that's kind of what I think of when I think of you. If Bill's calling the game or whatever it is, uh, not only is it a big deal, but but you make it sound uh, that much bigger. So um, you've had a, a, a great... Uh, impact on, on me uh, over the years, and I still have you on my morning show a lot, so I think that's, you know, people listening are realize that uh, uh, I, I put a lot of stock in the things that you say, and I, I know a lot of people around here who respect you uh, greatly as well, but um, it's been a lot of fun doing this. Uh, I can't imagine not having you part of the the uh, Century Podcast family, and now so this this ends episode ten. <laughs> Over the last couple of years, we started with Ty Boyd, and the latest is with the great Bill Rosinski. Thank you, Bo. My pleasure. Uh, one of the joys in my life is, has been uh, you know getting to know you, meeting with meeting you, uh, and and working with you. And we saw the best of times. We saw some of the worst of times. And I'm delighted that you have. Uh, you know, this is kind of like your dream job, uh, you know, being the voice of uh, Charlotte on the mornings on WBT. So uh, proud of you. Congratulations. And anytime you need me, just give me a call. All right. Uh, tomorrow we'll do this again. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Take care, Bill. All right, both. Thank you. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you.